0: This is Jocko podcast number 281 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Alarm goes off. I wake up. It's 0600, same time I woke up yesterday and the day before. Actually, since June 28th, almost 120 days ago. Four months. That's okay, though, because if anyone in the Persian Gulf tries to interfere with the policies of my sacred country, the United States of America, I'll be there to stop them. Two months ago, it was anyone in the Mediterranean. Actually, we could stop anyone in the world. Breakfast time, 45 minute wait in line, every meal is the same, stand in line sweating. That's okay, though. There are people in my country who neither know nor care that their freedom is being protected at this very moment. That, too, is okay because I do know. I'm doing it. Go to work. The same routine day in and day out. It could be compared to being in jail, except that the work we do is too hard and too dangerous to impose upon a common criminal. It would be considered inhumane. That's okay though. I understand freedom and the sacrifices that have to be made for freedom to be achieved. The life we live at the cost of our military members cannot have a price put on it. If you saw our paychecks, you would understand. Dinner time, chicken and rice again, that's okay. The opportunities we have in the states are limitless. There is nothing that any person cannot achieve if he or she has the heart. They don't have those opportunities in the parts I've visited. They don't even have Taco Bell. And that right there is a letter, letter written by Steve Voigt. Written on October 23rd, 1996. He was killed in a helicopter crash on October 25th, 1996. Two days after he wrote that letter. Steve was at SEAL Team 8 when that helicopter crash happened while they were training. And I went through SEAL training with Steve in 1991. Bud's class 177 and he was an old man at the time he was like 28 or 29 years old and he was our he was our class leading petty officer and was just an awesome guy and i know he was from the south i think he was born in georgia but he didn't have he didn't have a typical southern accent he had this other he had this other voice that probably one of the most distinctive voices I've ever known. And he was really loud. And so he had this distinctive loud this distinctive, loud, funny voice. It was kind of like this. He'd say, Hey guys, get over here. He had this just totally distinctive voice. You couldn't miss it. and he was tough as hell, and the instructors tried to crush him all the time because he was an older guy and a senior guy. He was a first-class petty officer, so being that senior, going through basic SEAL training, the instructors are gonna get at you, and they got at him, and they hammered him, but they they couldn't break him at all. They they actually couldn't even get him to crack a little bit because they'd be punishing him and he'd be hitting the surf, and he'd be doing push-ups, and he'd be doing sprints, and they'd ask him about something, and he'd still come off the same with that loud, just crazy, funny voice, and we'd rally right around him. Just a freaking awesome guy. And when he died, you know, it was 1996, there's no war going on, right? So it was definitely a shock to the system to have someone killed like that, and just tragic and horrible. And I knew that, you know, he had a son, and he had had a son because, like I said, he was older. He had a, he had a son that was named after him, another another Stephen Voigt. And I knew that, but I, I you know, I'd kind of lost track with him. I, I was on the West Coast. He was on the East Coast. I didn't go to the funeral for whatever reason. And I just carried on with my career and, you know, continued to try and serve to the best of my ability, always remembering, always remembering Steve Voigt and his sacrifice. What about a son? And what happened to him? Well fortunately Fortunately There was support for him And he was able to grow up and he was able to go to college and all that was taken care of by a group called the special operations warrior foundation and what that group is is One of the things that they do one of the main things that they do is they take care of of the children of fallen members of the special operations community. And and Steve's son got taken care of in that respect. The Special Operations Warrior Foundation stepped up and paid for his education and, and gave young Stephen the opportunities that his father was not there to give to him but that his dad had sacrificed for. And this story is one of thousands of stories of thousands of families that have been helped by this foundation. And we are lucky enough today to have the president and the CEO of this incredible charity here. A a man who has quite a story of his own from an enlisted Marine at age 17 to forty one years of service, resulting in the rank of Major General, two star, with service in Panama, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a bunch of other places around the world. General Clay Hotmacher. Clay, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Jaco. I appreciate it. That's a great story. I, I had never heard of that letter. I appreciate you sharing that.
0: I was looking at some videos that y'all have produced, and Steve Voigt's picture. I mean, it's just a picture of him and his son when his son's young. And uh, man, I couldn't, I couldn't believe, couldn't believe when I saw that. And I just, it struck me that, you know, I, I was in the, I was in the military. What, what can you do? This is something that we always feel when you're in the military, you lose somebody. You, you want to help, but you also have a job, right. and you're going to continue to do that job. And so organizations like yours that can pick up the slack for the guys that are still serving and, and have a long-term strategic plan to take care of these families and just seeing his son who's, who definitely looks like him. You guys have a video of, one, of him on there as well. And just seeing his son who, who looks like him uh, doesn't quite sound like him. Doesn't quite sound like him. Man, his voice was distinctive. Hey, what are you guys doing over there? <laughs> um, but just awesome to that that you have that that organization that, that helps in that respect. So we'll get to that. But before we get to that, let's let's start at well let's let's start at the beginning. I always like to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So
1: where where you grow mm-hmm. up? I grew up in Washington State. Uh, I was born in Wenatchee, Washington. Uh, bounced around a bit and uh, ended up before I joined the military in a little town outside of Everett, Washington, called Lake Stevens. And uh, yeah, I was living in a foster home, dropped out of high school, and rec- all I knew is I needed a kick in the ass, and I figured, well, the Marines, they'll definitely do that, and uh, they did not disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> so you in—you fo- were in foster homes from what age? Uh, that was maybe I joined when I was seventeen. I guess fifteen. My parents divorced when I was young, and I bounced around. And then, you know, a lot of this was my own doing. You know, to be perfectly honest with you, I was you know sort of done with my parents and wanted to. You know, they had moved from Lake Stevens, and I was like, hey, I'm not, I'm not doing that. With all the wisdom that a fifteen year old possesses, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, this, so,
0: so this is what nineteen like seventy five.
1: Uh, Yeah, if you want to round up a couple of years, that'd be fine, too. But uh. <laughs> but I'm saying it's 1975. Yeah.
0: You're 15 years old. You're living in foster homes. You're like to hell with the parents. I'm doing my own thing. What did you have any? Uh, did you think <laughs> we just just short sighted? Not.
1: Well, it was you know actually it was a little later than that. My mother was a writer. She passed away last year, uh, December year ago, last December, and she was in South Africa. If you ever saw that movie "Cry Freedom" with Denzel Washington, it was about this guy Donald Woods who was the editor of a newspaper over there, which was on the coast of uh, South Africa. She worked for him. So I lost that whole year over there with her. And in early 76, I came back because the school didn't count, right? Oh,
0: so you went there. You went to South Africa. Oh, yeah. I
1: lived in East London, South Africa between Durban and Cape Town. And that was a little slice of the Marine Corps right there. I mean, uniforms, haircuts and school and the whole deal, which, you know, I did not adjust well to that, (laughs) by the way. And uh, received the caning, numerous canings for that. Uh, oh, they got
0: their corporal punishment. All oh, out. yeah.
1: Bamboo canes. I mean, a, a once in a wet Speedo for not counting off properly and mandatory PT. And, uh, you know, I got religion pretty quick. Learned how to count for sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. And that's came like
0: prime at, apartheid time, 1976. It was, yeah. And this,
1: was, this newspaper was obviously against apartheid. So... You know, we were right in the middle of all that. I mean, it was really stark seeing the way they, the way life was over there. So anyway, I came back from that. I'd lost a year in high school, and I'm like, well, you know, look, I wasn't you know an academic champion anyway. So <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to join the Marines. And I and my, I that's and I got back from there. Didn't want to move back where my dad was. I was living with a guy and then a foster home. Took me in. It was that it's a pretty cool story. He this family, the Williams family. I'm still in very close touch with them. Their son had died. And he was a motocross racing is big up there for teenagers. And he had died. He was my classmate, Jeff Williams, and he had died in a motorcycle crash. And so I knew the family from afar, not, not close. I wasn't close friends with Jeff, but, but we knew each other. And so then it was sort of fortuitous, you know, that I providence that I came in his same age and ended up mm-hmm. with his family. And her the father, Charlie Williams, was a former Marine from Korea. Uh, and so he was telling me about the Marine Corps, and I see oh, that's what I need. So signed up and shipped out to the warm embrace of the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> so that did did
0: what did he do in Korea? Did you capture some of those stories? Did he was in
1: Korea? Yeah. Oh, so yeah, he you know he was I think he was a combat engineer, and uh, you know so he was. You know, I mean, I don't remember a lot of them, but, you know, he talked a lot about combat and how, you know, bad it's like. But really the best stories for him were boot camp. You know, they pulled all of his, I never forget one. He said they pulled all of his teeth out and were giving him dentures, you know, when he's in boot camp. Right. So obviously dental care was not high on his priority list. And right after he had that, he had stitches in his mouth. And the drill instructor pulled his dog tags, pulled him towards him real fast, and then extended his fist and punched him in the <laughs> mouth. And his whole you know, mouth exploded with blood and everything else. And I Are was we like, supposed to be laughing at this? <laughs> yeah. I was like, hey, it sounds like fun. I think I'll join. You know, So, uh, I mean, those were most of his stories, were the trauma. You know, when I look at Full Metal Jacket and those mm-hmm. boot camp scenes, I mean, my <laughs> D.I., Said a lot of those same phrases that they were. I mean, I thought that was authentic. What was that guy who ended up being an actor? Gunny uh, Ermy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was. You know, the. He, I guess at first he was a technical guy, but yeah, then he he'd... ended up. Playing a part, and I was like, "That dude could have been Staff Sergeant Amarine, who was my senior <laughs> DI when I went through." So,
0: so you showed up there in 1978. So these January, guys, yeah.
1: you're still getting, you're still getting Vietnam guys oh, that yeah. are your drill instructors. Yeah, my company, you know, in the Marine Corps, in a company, you have a first sergeant, you know, and in the NCO ranks, you can sort of split at E8. You can either be a master sergeant or a first sergeant and in a company traditionally you have a first sergeant who sort of runs all the admin and all that then you have a master sergeant who does ops right he's like the ops sergeant and i remember my first ops sergeant i mean he had one eye from vietnam and he was illiterate i mean he would sign like a x on the duty <laughs> roster and stuff like that i was you know i mean yeah there was some it was definitely a lot of vietnam era guys there and how do you adapt um Candidly, poorly at first, you know, I mean, when I got there, you know, I mean, it was shock and awe. Uh, And I, you know, I certainly didn't want to be there. And for probably the first few weeks thought I had made a monumental (laughs) error in judgment. But there was just enough in me that I felt like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go back to my family hat in hand with my tail between my legs. So I just, you know, tried to do it day at a time. But I do remember, you know. The first morning they wake you up, it's brutal, right? Trash cans thrown over, pulling people out of bunks. And, you know, there was a lot of physical abuse back then. I mean, it was, you know, measured, but seemed pretty violent to mm-hmm. me. Um, but, you know, I remember laying in, a, in my rack every morning before, you know, because I could hear them moving around like little mice positioning themselves before <laughs> they launched the all-out assault. And, uh, you know, and I'd be laying there and I'd be like, well, what do I have to look forward to today? Well, that would be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, once I got out of the rack and I started going, you're like, I'm Russell memory. I was fine. But those were the worst parts it was that morning laying there knowing this onslaught that was going to, you know, start there in a couple minutes. But all that being said, you know, I mean, and I and I think I was sort of a jack wagon for my first come as typical. You know, I did well in boot camp. I got whatever meritorious PFC and all that. I think primarily because my drill instructor was hot for my sister. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I could take any leg up I could get. Uh, but, you know, the first couple of years I did all this. Stu- I went to Lejeune to 2nd Mar Div out there, and I did all the stupid stuff that young troops did. You know, blow all my money the uh, first three days after payday. You know, thank God I had a meal card or I would have starved to death. Um but then you know, the, I went to Okinawa to Third Mar Div, and uh, that's when the, sort of the light came on, and I started going to school. I got my diploma and started going to college. And I mean, you know, and then once you get a little success, you know, you sort of build on that. I mean, there are setbacks mm-hmm. along the way, but then I was like, okay, I can do this. You know, what was your MOS? I was an eighteen thirty three Am Tracker. Get some, yeah. When you
0: when you say, was there anything that made you realize, hey? I need to kind of step up my game. Maybe I should start, you know, going to college. Maybe I should start my continuing education. Maybe I should start trying to get advanced. Was there anything that in particular, do you have a leader that mentored you? Did you just look around and say, man, why don't I do a little bit better? Well, do you remember what that was? was it was one thing in particular. Yeah, it
1: wasn't, you know, there wasn't a specific leader. There were later in my life, certainly those that, you know, that really inspired me to go above and beyond. Um, but at that stage, I think it was more seeing people crash and burn around me. You know, I mean, getting guys getting kicked out for drugs was rampant back then. I mean, it was really rampant. I mean, and, uh, and guys were getting caught. We didn't do urinalysis or anything like that. I mean, they were just physically caught with, you know, drugs in the barracks. And it was open bays back then. We were open bay barracks. at Courthouse Bay, which is where our, our battalion was. And I just saw all these guys, and I mean, I I just saw them failing, and I mean, I knew they were on a downward spiral. And I think over time, I saw enough of that where I was like, okay, I don't want that to be me. And I went to Okinawa with sort of a you know, a, my own personal mandate to to turn my life around and you know make something of myself. Hey, you know, listen, it was never part of the training on the training calendar for me to be a general officer. I remain <laughs> amazed of the flaws in the promotion system to this day, but you know i just i just my goal was to be a sergeant, frankly, that was my goal and uh and you know, but you know, you get a little victory and you sort of build on that and you know and then lo and behold, here I am, you know, <laughs> well flag flying and everything, so you know, <laughs> as you know, as a former aide, you know, yeah,
0: yeah, so you know, when you. You, How did you originally hear? Because you ended up going to the Warrant Officer Flight Program in right, the right, Army. Right. How did you originally hear about that?
1: Well, I re- when I was at the Rock, Okinawa, I re-enlisted. And uh, I went. To, I got my duty station of choice or whatever, and it was Marine Barracks, Whidbey Island, Washington, which is now long since closed. And I was working as a bouncer in the Globe and Anchor Club. You know, We had our own enlisted club at the corner of our barracks. And there was a reserve, a Marine Reserve Hilo unit that was, um, Huey unit that was on the base there. And some guy, um, uh, Pixley Urex was his name, was walking by with this brochure and it had a cobra hovering over the trees and a morning mist coming up. And I'm like, hey, what, what's that? And he said, hey, it's this Army warrant officer flight training. I mean, I barely knew what a warrant officer was. I mean, I was like, you know, the Marines memorizing ranks and all that stuff every night. You had to recite them before he went to bed and boot camp. But, you know, and I said, well, don't you have to have a degree? And I probably had, you know, I don't know, less than a year of college at that time. And he said, no. So I started, you know, I was like, hmm. So I took the brochure. He gave it to me. And we both ended up. You know, he ended up ultimately joining the co- – he got into the Army warrant officer program and then flew uh, 58s, uh, you know, little scout helicopters. and ended up transferring into the Coast Guard. But I went through the process. I drove down to Fort Lewis and did my physical down there, took all my flight aptitude tests. And, of course, right before I was getting ready to ship out for this, you know, the Marine Corps being the Marine Corps, <laughs> they're like, hey, you've been back, you know, for – 18 months from the rocks, so we're going to send you back to the rocks. I was like, perfect, you know. So, the army graciously delayed my entry into flight school for the 18 months. I went over there, did my time, you know. Came back from Okinawa, went to the separation center at Camp Pendleton, and then three days later, I was at Fort Rucker, Alabama. I had I didn't know anything about the army. I mean, I had nothing, you know. And it showed, you know, I mean, like drill and ceremony and all that. So they do it, you know, not completely different, but def- differently enough that I was dropped for push-ups frequently in Warrant Officer Candidate School. But went through that, uh, opted for Blackhawks. That was like sort of a new mm-hmm. airplane back then. It wasn't brand new, but it was, you know, pretty hot rock to get on. And I and I went to the 101st.
0: How many, when you were going through the the flight training, how many pilots were getting trained at a time, we just had a, a Vietnam pilot on, mm-hmm. and he said, you would go out to take off in the morning, there'd be like hundreds and hundreds of helicopters taken off in the morning.
1: Oh, yeah. it's It wasn't as bad as Vietnam. I don't The intensity wasn't there. But I think they graduated about 50 warrant officer pilots, and then there was a commission class that was, you know, sort of our, you know, they went along through with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we brought every two weeks. So, they were pumping out helicopter pilots like crazy. Um, and what did you fly as a training bird? Uh, well, I started out in this airplane, the TH 55 helicopter, which was uh, the civilian designation, I think, is a Schweitzer 300. It was a recip- reciprocal engine. I mean, it sounded like a freaking lawnmower. And it was like, you know, you said about hundreds of us, you know, we take off. <laughs> And we're all in a line, these orange helicopters, and flying out to our stage fields to do our stuff. And then after we checked out on that, and I mean, it was a piece of crap. I mean, this thing was, I mean, its max speed was like 50 miles an hour or something. <laughs> uh, we, we, I switched over to Huey's, went through the, you know, transition into that, and did all my instruments and in combat training, you know, comp- tactical training and that. And then, and then post-flight school I went into and went through the Blackhawk aircraft qual course.
0: How much different is it flying
1: a Huey from bla- flying a, a Blackhawk? Uh, much different. Yeah, the rotor systems, you know, and this is you know, I'm getting into techno geek mm-hmm. helicopter speak here. But, you know, the rotor system's different. It's a semi-rigid and a Huey and an articulated system in a Black, So that means you can do a lot more in a Blackhawk, you know, maneuvering wise than you can do in a Huey. Um, the Huey, I, I think I would put it, the Blackhawk is like a uh, G5 in the civilian world jet, right? And the Huey's like a DC-3, you know? So they're, you know, it's just, they're Vietnam, all these birds were like, you can see on the tail numbers, they were 68, 69, vintage, um, but I still like it. I got about three hundred and fifty hours in those things. I got about one hundred and sixty in flight school, and then the Blackhawks were grounded for a mechanical issue, so I flew medevac around, called in a unit you know, called Flatiron Air at Rucker. So I got a lot of time in Huey. So not a lot, but you know, pretty good time. We
0: had a we had a Top Gun. The guy that found the guy that started Top Gun was on here. Oh no, and kidding. Those guys were would just get into random aircraft. Yeah. And just take off in jets by themselves that they'd never flown before. <laughs> <laughs> like it, including they had they had captured a, a Soviet MiG and they'd go out in it was in like out in out in Arizona somewhere and they'd fly out there and they'd get in that
1: thing and fly that thing. D- is, it, is it that transferable with helicopters? Yeah, I would say, I mean, each airplane's got its own unique handling characteristics, helicopter. But, you know, the hard part is starting it for me. Like, okay, because, you know, some you got to modulate the throttle and give gas into the turbine to get it going. And some you don't. Know, I mean, so if somebody else starts it or walks me through how to start it, I mean, I can, you know, you just sort of react to the plane, you know, I mean, you see what it's doing. And, you would, you know, you do the counteraction or, you know, what you got to do in the control. So the stick and rudder stuff, I think, is pretty transferable. I mean, I hopped in a jet Long Ranger, I don't know, about a year ago, and I hadn't flown in, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. And it was no problem because he had to start it for me, you know. (laughs) But – and I wouldn't get into, like, flying instruments in it or anything like that. You lose more of the procedural stuff, like, you know – all instruments is, you know, flying into the clouds, there's a lot of procedure and things and you gotta stay up on that. It's a lot of book work so you understand what's happening and what your what your responsibilities are and like that. I'm, and it was atrophied for me. But as far as wiggling the sticks, yeah, I could I could hop in a helicopter. No factor. Today.
0: Was it hard? was there did you have any trouble going through flight was there a big attrition rate? Did you have any trouble with anything?
1: Uh no, not really. I um Instruments was pretty challenging, you know, you start in a Huey simulator, which is, you know um, Which was, you know doing climbing descending turns with not not no outside reference, you know You rely on your visual sense, right? So seeing and the horizon and all that way, of course, you don't have any of that in the cloud So they train you on how to, you know, get into instruments. So that was That was challenging A quick story, I was flying in the Huey simulator, and it's this giant, like, warehouse full of simulators. Like this, they don't, you know, they're really basic. And I'm late at night getting some extra flight time in there, and the simulator operator comes over to radio, because he's your air traffic controller guy, too, right? He's sort of your, you know, and I, you know, made some radio call, and he said, uh, Roger, Huey, one, two, three, four, five. You got a flight of geese uh, at your altitude going opposite direction, and I'm like, you know, looking at this dude I'm flying with. I'm like, what the hell is this dude talking about? Next thing I know, this guy's got a mop and he's slapping it on the windscreen like <laughs> geese hitting the windscreen. I was like, a little slow out there tonight, bro. You know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was a little challenging. It, like me, I think with me, when everybody else would say the same thing. But, no, I mean, now going into special ops and meeting those standards in the 160th for, you know, plus or minus 30 seconds and all that, there was some – there was definitely some stress there, you know. So you get done with
0: flight school, Mm -hmm. and then that's when you went to the 101st?
1: Yep. I was flying medevac for Delta 326 Med med Battalion, and and I was flying air ambulance stuff there. When I actually – when I got out of flight squad orders to Germany to a place called Schwabisch Hall, because one-third of the Army back then was in Germany. I never realized that. I mean, that's pretty significant. Wow. Those of the investment we had mm-hmm. uh, in the Cold War. But I heard about this secret unit, you know, uh, in Fort Campbell, and I was like, hey, that's what I want to do. I mean, I don't know what they do. I probably ain't good enough, but that's what I want to shoot for. So I swapped with a guy who wanted to go to Germany, and uh, I went to Fort Campbell, and within a month, you know, put, when I was in the 101st, I walked over to the recruiter. The, back then, the 160 didn't have any, they didn't wear patches, you know, anything. It was just, you know, all their, there was no signs in front of their buildings. And I said, hey, I want to join the unit. And I was a, what we call a wobbly one, you know, a warrant officer one junior <laughs> grade. And they laughed at me. And I went back every month and said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, they told me what I had to do and, you know, make pilot in command and get a lot of night vision goggle time. So I was doing my best to do all those things. And anyway, I kept, you know, telling them I'm interested, you know, persistence. Um, and then uh, I made it, dis- you know, I didn't realize the difference. And you you. You know, in your job in the SEALs, it was a little different. But a warrant is a technician, as mm-hmm. you know, right? So right. our warrants in the 160th will stay in the cockpit and fly in the same missions, whether it's Little Birds or 60s or 47s, for 20 years. Um, and I loved flying. I still love flying. But I also miss the leadership side of that, you know, being an NCO and... From, from your Marine Corps days. Right, yeah. And, you know, there's none of... There's, I mean, there is some of that in warrant officer ranks, but it's... It's not their main focus, right, by design. Uh, so I decided to go to Officer Candidate School. And um, and so, you know, I went to Officer Candidate School. Did, did
0: you, so you had to apply for that?
1: Yeah, I, I applied. I'd been going to college still, so I yeah. had to have, you know, two years of college to apply for OCS, and then you had to have your four-year degree by the time you made 03. So I applied and got picked up. Um, but it was funny, I had to... I mean, you have to. had to be commissioned, you probably remember this, by the beginning of your 10th year. Because so, mm-hmm. you had to be able to do 10 years of commission time was what you needed to do to retire by 20. I graduated OCS with nine years, 10 months, and two weeks. Like, if I would have got a hangnail or something and got set back, I would have been out, you know? And I was a W two when I Did went. Did you go to full normal OCS? Oh yeah, listen, I got the distinction of having my head shaved more than anybody else I know. No offense, you're of course. Getting, but, uh, you're getting indoctrinated yeah, on I'm a like, regular got, basis. I'm like the high high water mark for you guys on hair over here, which is not saying much, by the way.
0: But you, yeah, you. So you've been through multitude of. In, fresh indoctrinations Yeah, and OCS the military. was. So how was that? How'd they treat you at OCS? Oh, like What crap. year is this now?
1: So I, w- I started in July of 87 and graduated October 16th, I think, of 87, commissioned on that day, So I was technically a year group 88 because I was after the first of the fiscal year. Um, you know, I thought the curriculum at the course was pretty good. We spent about between a third and a half of our time in the field. Right, so we're doing, you know, it's really infantry-oriented, anti armor ambushes and ruck marches and things like that, which I thought was really good. Um, I would say, you know, the cadre at the time, and it could be different, and I'm in the OCS Hall of Fame, uh, and so they may, you know, disown me over this, but the cadre were not great. I mean, they were guys, you know, we had a couple guys, I think, that had gotten DUIs and got sort of stuck over there, you know, so it wasn't... They weren't like a great examples of stellar leadership in my mind. I thought the curriculum was really good. I thought the quality of the officers that were mentoring us were not. And, you know, a lot of the most of the OCS people that go through in the Army are those that have gotten a degree and decide after they're outside the window for ROTC to go into military. So they got to go to basic. And then they go to OCS. So you had a bunch of, we had masters, we had a couple of PhDs, I think, in there. But I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't know shit from Shinola. In there. I mean, they didn't know, you know. <laughs> How's that PhD treating you? Yeah, now? exactly. You know, but there was a small percentage of us that were former, you know, prior service, you know. And they sort of carry the class and do a lot of mentoring. And there was three warrants in our class. We had about 240, 250 people in our class. So again, good experience. Um, You know, I learned a lot. Uh, I I think, for instance, the Marine Corps does a much better job in investing in their training base than the Army does. I mean, um, I think that's changing now, but historically, you know, the Marine Corps puts their best and brightest to develop those young, you know, troops and officers. The Army really, they're more focused on their tactical units, which I think is at the expense of their future Mm -hmm. would be my... You know, my personal opinion.
0: Well, when I went to Officer Candidate School, it's it's run by Marine Corps drill instructors.
1: Did you yeah. go to Rhode Island? No, I went down Newport. to Pensacola. Okay.
0: And they're just freaking outstanding. I mean, they're just like exactly what you'd expect. They're just outstanding professionals across the board.
1: Yeah, that was my experience. I mean, my DIs were really, really sharp. I mean, a little twisted, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Little sadism thrown in there, but, uh, you know, they were very squared away. Set a great example for us.
0: So did you – so had you already gone to the 160th at this no. point?
1: So I would, it was funny. I had graduate. I was getting ready to graduate OCS. I had my packet in, right? i have been over there all those times as a warrant. And I called the recruiter right before I was getting ready to graduate. And I was or- on orders to go to the 82nd and fly uh, for the 82nd. And I graduated pretty high. I wasn't the number one, but I was like the number two. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, too.
0: what's what, what's the Hall of Fame all about?
1: Well, if you you know, listen, if you're you know, if you make it past Colonel in OCS, they like okay. they, you know, the funny thing is they say, hey, do you want to be in the OCS Hall of Fame? I was like, sure. I never went to the little <laughs> ceremony, right? But. <laughs> They said, okay, send us 250 bucks so we can do your pig. I said, well, that's a great deal. You know, so somewhere in some hall over there, Fort Benning, my picture's up on a wall with a little bio, but I've never seen it. Never. Well, to at it.
0: 250 bucks a pop, you might be yeah, I was amongst like,
1: a lot of company. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, seriously? You guys are going to charge me to put me in the Hall of Fame? I was like, typical, right? Yeah, you know, I'm sure if you went to the Navy hall of OCS Hall of Fame, it's probably very similar. Anyway, I was getting ready to graduate and, uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to call this the re- the recruiter, because you have to go through a week-long assessment process just to get accepted conditionally into the unit, you know, check ride, some physical f- standard stuff. And I talked to this guy, and he said, and I was a, you know, going to be a second lieutenant, they only took guys that were had previous flight experience, you know, so you had to get one or two tours. But because I had flown as a warrant, I had about, you know, 750 hours, and I had, approaching 100 NVG hours at the time, which was pretty good for back then, right? NVGs, you know, now, you know, that wouldn't even, you know, raise an eyebrow. But back then it was okay. So they agreed to uh, put me through the assessment, which pissed my assignment officer off because I was on my way to the 82nd. But And they told me going in, hey, look, we don't take lieutenants, but, you know, you do really well and maybe we'll bring you back. So I went. I sort of approached it with, a, well, I'm going to give it my all, and you know, they took me. So I went there as a second lieutenant. They made me go into headquarters for a while to learn how to, you know, collect for, you know, Army Emergency Relief and do all that kind of crap that you have to do as a young O. And then I went to a platoon, and I ended up being the first DAP platoon leader. The Attack Sixties. Mm-hmm. You probably saw those in Iraq several times. You know, I had a great platoon, Mike Durant, Cliff Walcott, who was killed in Somalia, October. In fact, my middle son, who just graduated college a couple of weeks ago, was Mitchell Walcott, Huttmacher, and uh, Donovan Briley, is co-pilot, they were killed in Super 6-1. So I had a great platoon. Went to Panama together. I went to the Gulf, flying off the Herc, Barge Hercules. Okay. Yeah. So what was going on in the—that's
0: that's what happened first. That was your
1: first right. big yeah. mish? Yeah, that was, like, <laughs> big time. You know, I mean, we flew into Bahrain. So you know. this is, what, like, 87? 80, I got there – I did my – yeah, I got there – actually, I got to the unit because I went through airborne school and did all that stuff at Benning. I got there around February of 88, and I did my first tour over there is like there was a logistics cell at the ASU Bahrain, mm-hmm. and so I did that. And then when I went through my training and got checked out as an MH-60 pilot, I went back over and did two more tours. So we'd fly into Bahrain – and the outgoing crew would fly off the barge, park it on the ramp, and we, we'd basically swap vests with them. Like, mm. we'd get their combat vests. They gave us their kneeboard packets. You know, we've been on this freaking rotator from hell for, like, two days, you know, stopping everywhere, Siginella, all those places. <laughs> and uh, we'd hop in the airplane, and they'd get on the commercial flight going out. We'd hop on those helicopters and fly back out to the barge and— start missions the next night.
0: Hey, when you, when you talked about the training, like, uh, so once you got to the one sixtieth, how many hours are you putting in? What kind of stress are they put? What are they doing to you to get you up to speed? How long does it take?
1: Well, uh, it's different now than it was then, but we had a, a, about a, I think it's a three week, three week for the O's, the officers and warrant officers ground phase training. So it's ruck marches, uh, uh, you know, grappling, you know, all those kind of things, shooting. We were carrying MP5s, which we ditched after uh, Somalia. And uh, so we do a lot of that shooting. And then we go into our, you know, we sort of split apart, the officers do. And so you're either a Little Bird driver, you're a 60 driver, you're a 47. And then you go through that, you know, and you go through a, what we call a basic nav phase. And it's basically every night you go out, you got a compass, and a clock and a map. You have no, you know, there's no GPS, no INS, no nothing. And they still do it to this way, this way, uh, to this day. And you're expected to hit targets plus or minus 30 seconds. And then you take a check right and then you get all the bells and whistles and learn all the systems and how to air refuel and gunnery and all those kind of things. Um, and, they, you know, they're still very true to that. Hey, if we tell you we're going to be there, plus or minus 30 seconds, we're going to be there. And, you know, once we put you in, we're always going to come get you out. I used to tell guys that all the time. Hey, we put you in, we're coming for you, man. doesn't matter. You know, whatever it takes, we're going to come get you. Which I think is unique. I'm not saying that other folks aren't dedicated, but that's all we do, right? Mm. We're completely dedicated. We don't care if it's a SEAL, a Ranger, Green Beret, MARSOC Raider. AFSOC, special tactics guy, we don't care. If you're on the ground, you know, you're our customer and we're going to do whatever it takes. So the training really infuses that in you. I mean, I was taught at a young age, hey, they're the customer. We do whatever it takes to support them. And that really is their ethos in the whole unit. How much is your level of flying improve in that first like six months that you're there? Well, you know, it's sort of, and you probably found it. I think, like, when you when you go into that unit, the unit's operating up here, right, and you're down here, and it really is sink or swim. You either come up here or you're history, you know, um, and that's true across the soft community, the special ops community. So, I mean, I I, I improved you know, significantly. I didn't really realize it, right? Because it's like when you're in the midst of it, I mean, you know, it's like leaving the SEAL team and getting in charge of a recruiting battalion or a recruiting squadron or whatever they have in the Navy. You know, you're like, okay, I ain't in Kansas anymore kind of thing, you know. <laughs> uh the same thing. When you're in it, and remember, I came there as a second lieutenant. My first tour outside of SOF was as an 05. Dang! So I did so a bunch like of time in the one twenty years or something. Yeah, close to it. I mean, I went um, I went to Air Force Special Ops Command as an exchange pilot. Uh, so I, after Desert Storm, Downing wanted to sort of bring us together. You remember, remember the the MH fifty three Pavlos and the Air Force and the one sixtieth. I mean, that was mm-hmm. not a harmonious relationship no. back then. So you know, and to his credit, General Downing and General Holland said, "Hey." We need to mend the fence. So I went to Hurlburt and flew, and then they sent a guy up. And I flew there from 92 to 96. and was an instructor pilot there. I met my wife there. She was a squadron intel dude. So my version is, you know, she latched on to the first Army guy. Uh, she has a slightly different version of that, but basically the army remains a subordinate service to the Air Force in my own house to this day. Check. So.
0: <laughs> so you so let's let's go back a little bit. Yeah. Um let's go back to Panama. So you're so you're a mm-hmm. platoon commander. So what does yeah. that mean? How many birds do you have when you're a platoon commander?
1: Uh eight, six, eight, something like that. Um, I had less because the DAP, the direct action penetrator, defensive mm-hmm. arm penetrator depend on uh, when you w- what you call it. Uh, we were brand new. Um, but you know that was big time man. I mean we went down there and uh, I had, uh, I had, we had two armed birds. Cliff Walcott and I were, fl- were flying together. and uh, it was funny. We got down there, and they had Apaches from the 82nd down there, not with us, but you know doing their stuff. And they wouldn't, uh, our commander at the time, for probably good reasons, and wasn't good reasons to me as an 01 or 02, but he said, hey, you're not going to do attack. I need you to do assault. So the AH AH-6 guys who, you know, out of general principle, despise the DAP guys, said, hey, DAP, what does that stand for? Didn't actually participate or didn't attack Panama? You pick. I was like, bastards you know so I mean I laugh about it It was very funny but yeah I went down there it was awesome we rolled off a C5 you know I got in there about two in the afternoon and we started banging targets that night zero one was HR they moved it up on the rescue with Kurt Muse and uh, it was cool I was assigned to a a seal element we were going to put seals around uh, the Cuban and Nicaraguan embassies they thought that uh, Noriega might squirt in there you know Mm. Whoever thought he would have went to the Catholic, you know, the papal nuncio for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we were. Uh, I was. We were sitting in hangar three at Howard Air Force Base, and uh, it was pretty exciting here. AC one thirty thumping targets in La Commandante with their one hundred five, and at one point somebody ran into the hangar, and there was like, you know, I don't know, I, I want to say a thousand. It was like cot City in there. Somebody said, hey, they're breaching the front gate of Howard, and they shut all the lights off. And I mean, you should have <laughs> charging animals going over where and I was sitting next to Walcott, and I'm like, no balls to say, die, gringo, and jump up and yell that in the dark. You know? <laughs> that was,
0: <laughs> and that was, I mean, um, how long How long were you flying ops for then in Panama? It was pretty quick.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the real – I mean, I've, we flew several night assaults. Of course, that was a hunt for Elvis, looking for Noriega for those first uh, few weeks, or first week, I guess. Um, you know, but really, major combat ops were uh, were over uh, pretty quick. And then they had—you know, then we started doing some, you know, sort of policing stuff. Um Remember the dignity battalions? They called it. We called them the Dingbats. That was Noriega's sort of th- uh, thugs that would, you know, were trying to rig the elections and mm-hmm. intimidate people. I'll tell you a quick story. So the ranger—I can't remember the name of the town—but um, north of Panama City, the, we called them the Dingbats. The Dingbats had moved in there, and they were—they um, were harassing the local populace, raping women, doing stuff like that. So they sent a ranger company up there, you know. To uh, sort of settle things down, and they set up set up this roadblock, and uh, they had you know like any kind of blocking position. You have an outer cordon, and then you have the main you know position here. And so they're all set up, and they're checking cars. And this this car comes careening up to the outer thing, full of four mams, you know, military age mm-hmm. males, bust right through the outer perimeter. So they, you know, they shoot a law at it and it misses it. It goes over the back of the car, but then they get to the main position. And I mean, they just open up with M60s, you know, clearly within the ROE and just shred these guys. Well, it turns out there were four PDF dudes that were completely drunk as hell. And, you know, and they had just, they just, you know, they were drunk. So of course, Ranger humor in the hangar. uh, There was a poster put up, Rad, Rangers Against Drunk Drivers. <laughs> that was classic. <laughs> oh, that's freaking. Yeah, I don't know who did it. I just remember seeing that. I mean, it was like a little humor there. and uh, Yeah, Howard.
0: That, that blue on blue thing is a nightmare. Well, these guys,
1: PDF guys, these were bad guys. I mean, they were... Noriega's dude. Oh, they were, they were they were those guys. Oh yeah, they were just drunk. You know, they just sort of drunk. As yeah, well. they were just they weren't a threat, but we didn't know. Hey, you breached got the god. You, know, you know the deal. You lit them yeah, up yeah. as well. Oh yeah, says, yeah
0: for sure. Yeah for <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, I thought you were saying they were friendly forces. No, no,
1: no. These guys were bad dudes. We Check. didn't have any Panama. Then partners. it gets
0: really then that then that then Rad is definitely funny. <laughs> oh definitely yeah yeah yeah. I mean
1: you know yeah Rangers against truck drivers. I love it. You know <laughs> the, how was the how was the.
0: You know, from your looking back now, the mindset down there, you know, we just didn't have combat experience as a country at that time. I'm sure I'm sure there there was a few Vietnam guys here and there, but the bulk of the force are a bunch of bunch of guys that really didn't have combat experience.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I don't think there were any there might have been a couple of like the senior, senior warrants that had some Vietnam, but most of those guys are sort of been out before this. I mean, you're talking 89. Mm-hmm. so, um, And we had practiced, you know, the original code name for that was Blue Spoon, you know, and then they changed it to something, you know, patriotic, you know, just cause or whatever. Something that sounds cooler. Yeah, but if you go back to the planning, it was Blue Spoon was the code name for it. Um, yeah, I was, fi- I mean, I personally, I was like, hey, this is like, doesn't get any better than this. I mean, this is, you know, this is cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we were overeager. You know, we—I'm sure we made a lot of mistakes, but you know, we're pretty disciplined in our planning, and um, you know, I think we're much better now than we were then. Obviously, or we got a lot of combat time. So yeah, I just remember being—I remember we I loaded the airplane it was snowing at minus eight at fort campbell or eight degrees maybe it was eight degrees i just remember i stripped off all my cold weather gear gave it to some uh, maintenance warrant that wasn't going with us and i said you know if i get clipped you can keep this stuff you know like you don't (laughs) got to turn it into the issue facility or whatever you know very bravado stuff stepping up the ramp (laughs) freaking john wayne's going on over here second lieutenant hupbacher man (laughs) running with scissors you know and uh um but, yeah, I was really excited about it. And, uh, you know, uh, another funny story, we take off on my—this is my first combat mission, a you know, log combat time, you know. And uh, we were flying from Howard Air Force Base out to Cologne to Fort Sherman out there. And uh, it was a daylight flight. We were just—and we had our, you know, our miniguns. And it was standard procedure. I put master power on up front, and then each of the— Each of the door gunners flips up on the minigun. He's got a toggle switch, and he puts all he was looking for is power, because then you got two triggers, a high rate and a low rate trigger. But we just checked to make sure got power to the guns. And it was funny, Mike Durat, we were just telling him, I was with him in Dallas uh, last week. He's sitting there in the cargo door with his legs hanging out. They got a cargo strap up, and the the gun is slewed back, you know, just sort of facing aft. And the guy on the left says, Yep, I got power. And then they shut it down. The guy on the right, as soon as he hits the toggle switch, it just starts shooting. Dang. Well, when those those triggers were push buttons and they had a rubber like boot over the top of it. And when they had somehow something got pushed up against it and jammed the trigger in, and the bitch couldn't see it. So Durant, you know, he's like,
2: Jesus. You know, like it was
1: right, like maybe a foot in front of his legs. He got this stream of tracers going out. So it wasn't. And actually, or just cleared the housing area right oh. by the end of the runway, you know. And I'm like, so 0.01 a combat time, and I attack military housing. Perfect. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> uh,
0: you get done with that. Yeah, and that that had to feel like you you know you you got you got some at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean,
1: in, in rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah well, that's like,
0: that's the thing. I mean. It, w- we look at all the stuff we did before September 11th. It's like it seemed cool at the time. Yeah, um, you get back from that, and then how much longer? It wasn't that much longer. We're, we're jocking up for for Desert Storm.
1: Yeah, I think it was like August when uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, rolled in there, and we deployed. Um, we deployed out to a place called R R A R A R out way out west. We were completely separate from the ground war. We went out there actually to go after those scuds being shot into Israel to keep Israel out of the war. If you remember back then, they were threatening to put their own soft elements in. And, of course, the coalition, remember Syrians were part of that. So the Arabs, you know, didn't want anything, didn't want the Israelis involved. So that was our mission. Again, it was Durant, Walcott, me, uh, and, you know, several others, Briley. No, Briley wasn't there. Um, And we were flying. We had four birds. Two would go up. And do a little hunt, and the other two were QRF for the ground elements, doing uh, ground recce up there and, and uh, attacking. I mean, it was awesome. Really, really tough flying. Um, crashed on my, one of my first flights. Bounced off the desert floor. Which, How'd that happen? Well, we were doing a we were doing a little rehearsal in Saudi before we went up there. And, I mean, you get out of town there, it's black. I mean, there's no ambient light. Your nods are just, you know, that sparkle you get mm-hmm. when you can. I mean, you're just like, oh, are these things working? You know? Um, so we had infilled the daps. We, we were, our original mission is we were going to put in an OP. So we had two guys in the back. And once they the heavy birds landed with their mobility vehicle, their vehicles, we were gonna, you know, cover them, but then land, you know, out off their flanks and drop off these two dudes that were gonna just sort of be an op for them. While they were getting their vehicles ready for movement, and so we had dropped these dudes off, and I mean, browned out like I'd never browned out before. You know, it was just it was horrible. We were climbing out, and the other guy was on the controls, and I'm a head over in the cockpit uh, trying to punch up something on this navigation system because GPS was brand new. And the crew chief, who I'm still very close with, i promoted him a couple times since then, yells out, check altitude. And we got, I got a FLIR screen, you know, in front of me with a, what we call RAD out, a radar altimeter, which is absolute altitude over the ground. It's not a mean sea level. It is how far you are until you hit the ground. And it said zero. Oof. And I just reached over with one hand and pulled up on the collective. And as we smacked the ground and came up in this cloud of dust and Bent the antennas on the bottom of the airplane, split the tailwheel rim in half. I mean, it was, I mean, I couldn't even talk for like 30 seconds. And I look over at the other guy, I'm like, dude, what the hell? He goes, well, I couldn't see. I was like, were you going to tell me that when we were underground? I mean, what was the plan here? You know, because we just cheated death, you know? And we had, I had several close calls over there, probably any time more than I've had, not directly enemy related, was. You know those dust storms. You'd hit those things up in western Iraq, which were just fierce. It so was biblical those things. Oh, I seen those
0: biblical storms where I was looking, going, "This is Isn't straight it? out of the Bible." I There's a freaking wall right. of sand
1: is coming, and it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, and it, I mean, and it's violent. I mean, yeah. when it hits you, it's yeah. just like, I mean, it's like a tsunami. Coming at you. I mean, no, you. I mean, I know yeah, you're. Yeah, yeah. I can exactly picture what yeah. you're looking at. That churn at the bottom, oh, yeah. and there's coming at you, and you're like, "Oh shit, man! <laughs> we're gonna have to redo the windows after this." You know, yeah. it was bad. Yeah.
0: So, what were the profiles like? So, what were the profiles like for those ops that you were doing out looking for Scud missiles in the in the Iraqi desert?
1: So we'd go up there. You know, we had ground elements up there, and we'd fly up there, and we get sometimes we get some intel. <clears throat> Because there was, you know, the, before they'd launch a scud, there were certain things that would happen in advance of that. Uh, and I think I got the nomenclature right, but they had an n radar, which was a meteorological radar, and that thing would come up a few hours before it massed and do a 360 sweep, get a bunch of atmospheric data to plug in. Because, I mean, the scuds weren't really guided. I mean, mm-hmm. they weren't, you know, it wasn't like, hey, we're going to hit this building. It wasn't like that. Uh, they had a target in mind, but it was a ballistic solution. So we, you know, we'd see that thing come up. And in fact, one night we were up there, and the Rivet Joint or whatever called us and said, "Hey, we got a, we got, you know, we got a hit on this entry radar." And I was chalk Two flying off of Walcott, um, and sure enough, in this little waddy, this truck was sitting down there like a looks like a Kamlo truck with a big box van on it and a mast. And I mean, we smoked that dude. I mean, we came in and. In fact, we got so close, uh, the lead bird got so close that they were shooting, they got a secondary off the truck, mm-hmm. and it shattered the windshield. And the uh, co-pilot, they said every time they got over a 100, 100 knots, the windshield started caving in, so he flew with one foot up there holding the windshield <laughs> out. We were going back into I mean, it was, it was cool. Uh, so we, you know, shot that. We had some scuds, and there's a lot of debate to this day. If you Google it, you'll see pictures of them um, that uh, they were probably decoys, mm-hmm. But they stopped shooting after that. I mean, we basically, they quit shooting within a week of us going up there. And so we were all over them. You know, our missions were five, six hours long. We had to get ox fuel tanks, cargo strapped to the floor just to to make it up that far. Dang. Um, That one
0: didn't last very long either.
1: No, I mean, for (laughs) us, it started pre—like, I didn't even know the war started except that we had a 10K loop around the airfield that we go run. And I remember I went out, and there was a little sign on an easel out there or something that said, got to run with your gas mask on your hip, which, of course, you know, again, I'm a first lieutenant. I'm like, you know, really? I mean, come on. That's yeah, a pain in the ass. And that was – and I learned later. I said the war started. Now, uh, a funny story. Uh, I was out on my first mission flying, and uh, you can thank your brethren in the Navy on this one. Um the the other crews were, were uh, sitting in the air terminal at this RR airfield, and in the middle of the night, boom! You know, a uh, a missile comes in. And, you know, and everybody it wasn't it was it wasn't enough like a bomb, but it was a missile. And everybody's looking, and they thought it was a chemical attack. So, you know, everybody's, you know, assholes and elbows, <laughs> antropine, you know. Everybody's putting <laughs> their masks on and all that. But well, what had happened is is all, nav- all navigational aids are supposed to be shut off. And they had forgot and left a TACAN on, you know, a digital Oops. thing at distance. And an EA-6 was coming back, going back to the Red Sea. Now, keep in mind, we're 35 miles inside of Saudi. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're right on the border. And this dude lets one of those harm missiles go, and it comes in. And, you know, those things are like a giant shotgun shell. They get to a certain point, and then it just opens up, and it's like a bunch of buckshot goes in and takes out the radar, and that's what it was. In fact, I, I don't think I still have it, but I had a piece of the, you know, U.S. Navy on the canard <laughs> on it, you know. So our only attack was from an EA-6 off of a carrier in the Red Sea. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: and, and did you notice – I mean the mindset. How many how many pilots or how much experience did you bring from Panama? And now you're doing kind of more operations, or was it like, hey, we're still we're still feeling pretty green at this?
1: Um, you know, we certainly. I think the tension and the anticipation. We were getting used to that. You know, from Panama, of course, the environment was completely different. This, you know, Panama was basically urban, really. I mean, for the most part. Um, the, challenge, the flying was much more difficult on Desert Storm, for sure. But remember, we'd had um, Prime Chance, right, operating off the barges. We'd had Just Cause, now myself, and there, that was pretty much the norm. We'd all sort of been involved in that. And now this is our sort of our third gig for that current generation. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a sense of confidence there, maybe a little overconfidence Um you know, I, I don't. I wish I would have got more time flying in the desert in those kind of conditions. I mean, mm-hmm. that was like a, that was a definitely a, a different level than I'd ever experienced before, and humbling. So yeah, you know, planning wise, we were good. We knew what we needed to do. Gunnery wise, we were good. Probably environmentals were our biggest challenge. Uh, just those, like you said, those sandstorms. You see one of those things coming, I mean, you're like mommy <laughs> you know I mean it's like it's, you know this is not going to end well you know <laughs> you
0: get you get done with that where where's your next where'd you go after that
1: so we got out of uh we got back from desert storm and uh this is when I went to this you know then downing said hey i want you would you can i was supposed to go fly with the marines fly cobras at Yuma as an instructor pilot down there that's where I was going to go and then Downing said, no, I want you to go to Hurlburt to fly with Air Force Special Ops Command as exchange pilot. Let's start, you know, let's start combining you guys. You're like Hatfield to McCoy's mm-hmm. out there. So um, I, that's where I went. I went through um, Kirtland Air Force Base out in New Mexico, you know, to go through the Air Force version of the 60 qualification course. And then I went to uh, 55th Special Ops Squadron. And, uh, I mean, loved it, man. It was, you know, it was, I'd never air refueled before. I'd never done, you know, and they, it's just a completely different approach to aviation than the Army has. I mean, uh, and I loved it. Flew there for four years and, uh, you know, flew my butt off. Ended up being an instructor pilot there and uh, just really. And you were still flying 60s, though? Yeah. Because they, they wanted me to. They Ideally, I would have transitioned over to 53s. Yeah. The problem was it was just one of those military things. It was a year-long course, so they had to have done a permanent change of station to get me into Kirtland and then another permanent change of station to get back to Hurlburt, and nobody wanted to pay for that. So I went there <laughs> on temporary duty for right. four months. And, I mean, I, I'd already had 2,000 hours into Blackhawk. I mean, this wasn't, you know, like rocket science to me, you know. So I sort of went through the course pretty quick. I just had to learn Air Force regs.
0: You, you couldn't fly. convince him. Hey, if somebody can just show me how to turn on this fifty-three, <laughs> I got it. I actually from there. knew how to start it,
1: but they, <laughs> you know the Air Force has like these. You know they're they have a lot more regs, regulations, and stuff that you got to learn. In the Army, it's like much less.
0: What was it? So you said the the view on aviation was different. What else was different?
1: Um, the culture is a little different. I mean, they're great guys there. You know, I mean, the current JSOC commander, Scott Howell, was in my sister squadron. The current Air Force Special Ops Command, Jim Slife. And now they're both our three stars. They were, we were like running mates over there, you know. Um, you know, the Air Force and the Navy, with the exception of the SEAL community, are really platform-centric, right? They man a platform. The Navy mans a ship. The Air Force mans an aircraft. The Army and the Marines and, you know, and the SEALs, um, we equip the soldier or the sailor or the Marine. So it's a different, it's a different mindset there. And I don't mean, I would, I'm not implying for a second that they're not good at their job, but, you know, they're, you know they value that platform. Um, I mean, when I was the 160th commander, I lost three aircraft in a week. I had two Chinooks land hard and rip the gear off. One had to be blown in place. It was way up in the Hindu Kush. The other, we stripped it down in a 53. The Marines slung it out for us. And the third was on a day mission in the Helmand and got hit with an RPG and crashed. I mean, you know, I think in the Air Force, you'd get relieved for that. Mm -hmm. You know, in the Army, I never even got a call. I mean, I had to report it up, you know, standard op-rep kind of stuff. But... I think you know uh, the army's just hated you have fatalities, and we didn't. You know that we lost you know probably a I don't know hundred million dollars worth of aircraft, mm-hmm. but we didn't have a fatality. And again, it's just a different you know. And the other thing about us is we only exist to support the guy on the ground. I mean, the one sixtieth Army Aviation isn't a you know isn't strategic air power, right? It's tactical. You know, we only exist to support. Him. So that's our mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, the pilots, are the, a lot of the warrants, I mean, a good percentage of them are former Green Berets. I had some former SEALs. Bobby Moore uh, was in the 160 with me, a former SEAL. A lot of Rangers in there. So there's a great empathy for the guy on the ground, mm-hmm. right? And I think, th- and that's just our culture.
0: Yeah, when, when I had this guy, uh, Colonel Matt Jackson, who was a, a, a Huey pilot in Vietnam, they sent 5,000 Hueys to Vietnam. 3,200 of them were lost in combat.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know lots of guys that were shot down. <laughs> we
0: And we were talking and, and I, I, I just, you know, he said, well, was a Huey cost, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars back then. I said, well, yeah. how much is a Blackhawk? And he goes, I don't know, maybe 500,000. And I was like, I don't know if that's right, sir. No, <laughs> But it's like 20 million, right? Yeah,
1: well, one of ours is about 23. Um, I think you could probably – and UH-60 Mike is somewhere between 15 and 20 million, somewhere around there, yeah. I would suspect. They're not throwing
0: those things no. away. <laughs>
1: no, but they – you know, but again, I mean, I, when I was the 160th commander at the time, I was told this, and I can't prove it, but I, I'm pretty sure it's true. We had more casualties from any 06-level command in SOF. we had had more than anyone. And you think about it, we had Red Wing, mm-hmm. we'd had a bunch of those – and, um, and, you know, but it didn't stop us. I mean, we were, we never changed. I mean, we just kept – we got better, right? Right, right. learn. But, we, lo- yeah, we lost a lot of aircraft and a lot of people. Um, shit, on Red Wings, we lost – you know, we had the QRF was eight SEALs, and we had eight 160th guys on there. Yeah.
0: Um, so you come home. You're now – so now it's like 1991. We're about to enter the – Kind of the dry
1: years. Yeah, go to go to you know AFSOC Air Force Special Ops Command from there till '96. This is where you meet your wife. Yeah, you said. Yeah, she was a uh, the squadron intel officer, and you know, of course, like I and said, and she couldn't
0: figure you out. What happened? Well, no, she's like you
1: know who is the you know best looking dude, most manly dude here. Clearly, you know, Hell it was yeah. me. You know, I mean, I'm a total chick magnet, uh, and uh, you know, but we end up uh, yeah we end up getting married. And then uh, I went to a classified assignment from there, and um, and she we'd already had one kid, and then she went, uh, we you know so it was one of those dual military, which is tough. And then when she got pregnant with our second, she uh, she elected get out, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and I'm grateful because we ended up having you know three boys total, and, I mean, she gets all the credit in the world for raising them because, I mean, her her deal was, hey, you go out and play Captain America. I'll you know, take care of the family here. So I remain indebted to her uh, and very respectful of her because she would have been at least a colonel in my opinion. You know, you know, you see a young officer, you know who's got it, who's mm-hmm. not going to go far, and who is, and she was clearly one of those that was going to go far. So
0: you get – how
1: long were you at this classified assignment for? Uh, let's see, six years. I did uh, a year at Navy, uh, Newport. Okay. That's where I met Colin Green. We were next door neighbors. (laughs) Got Uh, it. And, uh, so I did that. And from 96 till 02, then I went back to the 160th and was, um, XO of first battalion and then ended up commanding a couple years later. So
0: when September 11th goes down, you're in Newport going to war college or something?
1: No, I was in Budapest. Uh, on an exercise um, when it happened Um, we were over there doing a uh, you know it was one of those I think it was like a loose nuke kind of thing you know uh, exercise Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's where I was and then you know a few a few weeks later I was deployed you know I won't go into the details, but I was deployed into Pakistan and then basically you know the world changed for all of us after that you know so
0: when, when you started doing missions, when, do, when did you get back to the 160th then?
1: Uh, I got back to the 160th in June of—it was right around Father's Day of oh uh, two, And then, you know, I took over as the executive officer of 1st of the 160th, um, which is, you know, the, the biggest battalion there, and that's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up, you know, a few months later, two months later, I was in Afghanistan, did back two back-to-back tours, and then we invaded Iraq. In How May. long were your tours over there? Um, back then, we were doing. I was doing about. I did sixty days. Was back for thirty days. and Went back for another sixty days, and then I came back because we had an alert package, so you had to mon- you know, you had to have that ready to go. So when I wasn't forward, I was back sitting on alert, and then I ended up in Iraq in May.
0: So what, what kind of ops were you running in Afghanistan? Were you, were you flying as the XL?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Getting absolutely. It. Yeah, it. Yeah, uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun. Now, Afghanistan, I mean, that's some challenge in flying right over there. I mean, you know that, that, you know, that place is like, don't call it the rooftop of the world for nothing. I mean, I, used, I was very, you know, my fond of saying, and I still say it, you know, if you compare Iraq to Afghanistan— the enemy in Iraq is the enemy. It's the insurgents, right? I mean, the terrain is, except for those, you know, biblical dust storms over <laughs> there. I mean, it's not very challenging yeah. terrain. You it's, know,
0: it's usually not very. It's usually
1: predictable too. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be and hot, hot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or you the, know, in the winter
0: yeah. time, it's going to be cold, but it's pretty. It's pretty predictable. Yeah.
1: But Afghanistan, I mean, you know, you're up at the highest altitudes. I mean, everybody's running on the little birds were essentially worthless over mm-hmm. there. To, you know, if they were carrying anything and. The Chinooks ended up being the heavy lifter for us to insert ops up, in, you know, way up in the Hindu Kush. I mean, the Blackhawks couldn't even do it. So very, very challenging flying there. In the early days, you know, they were launching out of K2, out of Karshi-Khanabad in Uzbekistan, going north into— um, So is it like when you're flying
0: at that altitude in a helicopter, is it like you're driving on, on, like, wet pavement where you just don't get the reactions that you would normally get—
1: yeah, I mean, it depends on the altitude. The aircraft is not as responsive. But where where you really pay the price is if you get, when you're doing an approach in there, I mean, you got to closely manage your power or you're going to get in trouble. If you let momentum develop on that descent in the approach, I mean, you don't have the power to go around. You know, you're committed regardless of the enemy situation. So it's just really, you're just very, very limited on the uh, on on power and options up at altitude. So you know, I remember flying missions up 15,000 feet. So you got to be on O2 with forty sevens, and their you know their allowable load was like eight guys in a Chinook. Jeez. I mean, usually it's plus or minus a ton in those things, right? I mean, you know, just keep packing them in. I've seen a hundred rangers in a Chinook before,
0: and you're down to eight eight. When you guys knew. Did you have any time to say, hey, we better go start flying, you know, around the Rocky Mountains? Nope. Just figure it
1: Later out. Later we did. Later we'd start prepping. We'd go out. In fact, we lost an airplane at Mount Massive, Colorado. Guys training up to go in there. I lost four guys. I was a commander at the time. But in the initial days, no. Nothing. Because, I mean, you know, it was a come-as-you-are deal. Right? So
0: do you know, I just knowledge that you know, like, okay, well, we're at altitude. This is going to suck.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you do the performance planning, right? So you get you you understand what the aircraft can and most more importantly can't do at those altitudes. So, but you're you know you're sort of in denial at those numbers. You know, I mean, I never thought I'd say eight guys in a Chinook. Plus, you had to deal with the brownout. That dust mm-hmm. was just really really bad. Worse in the southern parts down in uh, Helmand and down in those areas around Kandahar. Uh, less so up in uh, you know up in uh, Hindu Kush mountains up in the north. But, you know, I mean, it was brutal flying. Brutal.
0: And so you when you first got over there, your first deployment, what's your op tempo like?
1: Um, so I got over there the first time I was there, I think September of 02 or August of 02 through maybe October or maybe November. I can't remember. But um we did a fair amount of missions, and, um, and then, you know, I, the last next time I went over there, I think I was there in January. No, I left December. I remember I left December right before Christmas, 30 days to the day. I was right back in the same crappy little tent up there at Bagram, you know, with rainwater. I mean, it was just water running through it and everything. Uh, and then from January through March, because, you know, now we're spinning up at the latter part of that to go into Iraq, right? Uh, we were, you know, they got the word. We're going in. And um, we didn't do much. I mean, because weather was really crappy. I did a couple of missions, mm-hmm. uh, some pretty challenging ones, way, way up in, the, uh, in some areas that were very tricky for aviation. In fact, I, one, I was so high in, uh, in a place called Cantigua – that we couldn't have any fire support. I mean, the airplanes wouldn't perform, so I just elected to stay on the X. Right? We infilled, and I got the ground force commander. said, so give me a couple guys to cover our blind spots, and uh, we're just going to go to ground idle while you guys clear and get whatever you're getting, and then hop back in. And we'll normally, you know, you know the deal. We yeah. come in, we land, drop off, and then split. We did. We just stayed. And you know, pulled the engines back because I didn't. I didn't want to. It took us two hour turn to go get gas down the hill and come back, and I didn't want to leave them up there for that long. So we said, "Hey, we'll just hang out." How long are you on the ground for? Uh, about forty five minutes to an hour. It wasn't that bad. It was cold though. I mean, it was freezing. It was snowing and everything else up there. It was like I said, February or something.
0: How? How? At what point did you uh, notice that people were just? Like, this is what we're, this is what we're doing. This is the new reality. You know, when I talked to you, you know, you were talking about, I was talking about the mindset, you know, when you did Panama and then you did Desert Storm and you, you're not quite there yet. You know, you're, yeah. you're not quite there yet. And then, you know, we were talking earlier, uh, my first deployment to Iraq. It's like, oh, we're doing another, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we're doing another op. This is just what we're doing. It's just like becomes normal.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that really, you know, there was the, the op tempo, the operational tempo in Afghanistan wasn't that bad just because of the terrain and the planning. And we didn't have all the ISR back then. You know, we didn't have all, that, all the, you know, the tools to give us good situational awareness on targets like we ended up having mm-hmm. in Iraq. Where I saw that it was, we really became just sort of another day at the office was in Iraq. So I went over in May. And I'll never forget my boss. The this weekend, is May of May of, May of Got it. So, my boss, you know, they had punched up there around March or so, I think. Yeah. You know, they did that big. Went into Baghdad mm-hmm. International Airport. I came in, and I, you know, the XO is sort of the, you know, he's the guy in charge of all the staff and, uh, you know, logistics and all that kind of stuff. And my boss said, hey, come over here. We're, we're, we're going to be out of here in 30 days. I just want you to make sure we got property accountability and you get all your stuff and get out. And I was like, you know, I mean, I hadn't been to Iraq, so I'm like, sign me up, chief. Rock, rock I'm in, that. you know. Yeah, so I showed up there. And, well, of course, you know, 30 days never happened. But, man, I mean, the best time. I mean, we did – we did some ops uh, that were just incredible. I mean, the op tempo was really, really high. I mean, we were banging targets. We did an op. Um, it's been in several magazines. Op Reindeer it was a bunch of, bunch of uh, foreign fighters had gathered. They were getting ready to split up and attack coalition bases with teams of three. And uh, we got the intel on them and we went in with a ha- half-gaff kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. helicopter assault force for the audience and ground assault force on each side of this wadi. And, I mean, it was it was game on. I mean, it went on. We fought for about two hours, killed about 100 of them. A uh, young ranger took an RPG below the knee. Uh, You know, we him. I'm still in touch with him. Matt Waters. He's up in Tacoma as a cop right now. (laughs) Freaking outstanding! Yeah, he is. He's he's uh, (laughs) stud. I mean, second Ranger Battalion B Code 275 was the unit. I mean, I was a mission of a lifetime. You know, I was I was. air mission commander riding in a jump seat of a 47 tracer. We were coming in underneath the tracer fire. I mean, it was awesome. In fact, I was the tracer fire was coming out my left side, you know, and of course your chest plate's meant to protect your chest. So I was loosening up my side strap and <laughs> slid it around this way. I was like, oh, I'm going to get clipped. It's going to be over here, you know, uh, but just a great mission. AH-6 is just crushing them and it was a fight went on for a couple hours did a lot of engagements shooting m4s out of the side of the because the rangers were so close to the enemy that we didn't want to use mini guns because the ricochets mm-hmm. so we just hover in there and the ah6 guys would take them out with uh m4s and pec 2s and all that so it was a good that was the remains the best mission i ever did it was awesome
0: and so this is st- this is in like that was june eleventh two 2003 something. got it yep and this is now. Now we're getting into legit op tempo. This is what we're yes. doing. Reload, get yep. jocked up again. We're going out tomorrow. Here's the next target. It went from that
1: till you know you flash forward now a couple years later, right prior to the surge, and we were running. We'd be running seven, eight ops a night. I mean, I'd have those big screen TVs and ISR tracking multiple ops uh, out of out of uh, Belod. And, I mean, it was just nonstop.
0: So you went for 30 days. How long did you end up staying for?
1: Well, he said it was going to be 30 <laughs> days. So I left in August. So I was there about 90 or so. And then I came back, was back for two months. And then I went over there for Christmas and spent, you know, another 60. And then I, I you know, a lot of guys can tell you how many times they're over there. I don't, I have no idea. I just lost track. I mean, that was just, you know, it was Back and forth, back and forth.
0: And, and at what point did you go, were you XO the whole time, or did you eventually fleet up and?
1: No, so the Army does it a little different. And so I was XO from um, 2002 till 2004. And then to command first of the 160th, it's a special board called the Special Mission Unit Board that meets. And you have to have commanded another 05 level command before that. So I got selected and went over to Germany, and commanded for two years over in Germany, which was, you know, a great, I wouldn't call it a breather, you know, command's command, but mm-hmm. I didn't deploy. And so I, you know, the family and I, you know, drank a bunch of heffies and <laughs> ate a bunch of chocolate, and you know, looked like ate a couple bratwurst. of sausage. My wife's <laughs> like, man, this camera makes us look fat. Oh, yeah, that's definitely it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did that
0: tour then? And yeah, and then
1: I got picked up to go back to 1160. And uh, which was 0, uh, 06 to08. And then the guy that was supposed to take the regiment opted to retire instead, you know, for personal reasons. And they I, they did a special, they, I my name went in to command, you know, to be considered for command in the regiment at the O6 level. So I did, I came right out of first of the 160th, moved my box. I love me stuff, and walked down the hallway and took over the regiment. So I was in command six straight years. Dang. Yeah, it, but you know, you don't realize how tired you are. My wife's like, "Yeah, you're smoked." I'm like, "No, I ain't smoked. I'm like a little Energizer Bunny here. I'm ready to keep going." You know?
0: When you when you went back as battalion commander, so what was that? So now now it's 2006.
1: What was your most of your focus? Iraq. So we were totally engaged in Iraq. So myself, my XO and my OPSO, we were on a three, you know, so there was one of the three of us was downrange as a task force commander forward. So I was totally committed. We were totally committed to Iraq. We did some other stuff. We had some stuff in South America pop up where we deployed operationally. There was, you know, some hostage stuff going on down there. But we were completely, mainly, we were focused. And I was really worried about keeping the team together. We Remember, we've been in a fight now. This is for several years. So chronic fatigue was an issue for me. I was really worried the wheels were going to come off. So a lot of my focus was keeping, you know, making sure I'm monitoring the players and uh, and making sure that we're, you know, doing the best. And I got crystal there, who is, you know, you know, aviation is the pacing item over there. So they they want more and more Mm -hmm. and more. So, you know, and I always, I told this several years later, my job was to try to meet your requirements, but, you know, make sure the unit survived and we didn't, you know, we didn't start losing people to accidents and things Mm -hmm. like that. And we lost a lot of folks, but all, you know, combat related. I did have, you know, I lost one bird on Mount Massive, Colorado. We lost four doing high altitude training for preparing to go into Afghanistan when I was regimental commander. So we certainly had our share of accidents, but but overall I thought it was, you know, it was less than what I was expecting.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't think that when when you know, after after Desert One, right? Mm-hmm. And they formed JSOC. Yeah. They weren't trying to put together Uh, a a bunch of units that would be on sustained combat operations around the world, right? This was not the plan.
1: No, it was hostage. It was short, (laughs) intense ops. And then, you know, and then, you know, back home to refit and retrain and reset. Right. It wasn't this.
0: So, so taking this group of people and just going, oh yeah, you're going to go to war.
1: Oh yeah. It's going to last about
0: 20 years.
1: Which is what happened. It's still, yeah. I mean, you know, it's wrapping up there in Afghanistan now, but, you know, the ones, you know, I always joked when I'd uh, talk to my counterparts, I'd say, you know, we've deployed, we're just still waiting for that redeployment order, <laughs> you know, because we stay, we're staying over there. So aviation is always there. Even the ground units are coming in and out, you know, the. They had more of a predictable cycle, right? You got your two-year cycle at NSW, and there's Jorts Mm -hmm. and other cycles that the other units use. But because aviation is high demand and low density, I mean, you got to spread the peanut butter a lot thinner. I mean, we were rotating all the time. You know, we had two C-17s a month coming out of uh, Campbell to replace, you know, combat damaged aircraft and bring aircraft back for maintenance and then rotate people in on them.
0: are they going to try and make special operations bigger? It certainly doesn't seem that way.
1: (laughs) No, you know, I mean, I had the RAND guys come in and see me when I was the regimental commander and said, hey, there's enough demand for a second regiment. And I said, I'm sure there is, but there's no way the Army could sustain that. I mean, we're a talent thief from Army aviation already. You know, you don't get assigned to the 160th, right, as a pilot. You you have to be— you have to apply and go through an assessment process and get selected and if, you know and there's a the brigades pay a price for that you know the aviation yeah. brigades in the army they're losing solid folks now the nation gains from that but you know if we doubled the size of that there's no way no way they could sustain that uh, it's just the nature of the beast you know i mean we're going to be you know we're going to be the we're going to be forward and we're going to have to operate at a different op tempo than our Than the ground forces we support. And it's just a fact of life. I accepted a long time ago. I understood the realities behind it and never pushed back. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm not going to leave you in an HLZ. And that, you know, and I'm not, you know, if you need combat power and we can provide it, if it's physically possible, we're going to do it.
0: So, from a leadership perspective, that's like full commander's intent right there. Like, hey, we are going to support these guys on the ground no matter what it takes. Exactly.
1: And, you know, your greatest strength carries over to be your greatest weakness. I, I'm sure that some of my senior officers would say that I was pretty aggressive in that, and, and they would be accurate. Um, you're, you know, I, but it was, it was, it was you know, burned into my psyche early on that, hey, that's why we exist. So, And I don't care if the ground force commander is an E6 or an O6. I don't care. doesn't matter. I don't care what uniform he's wearing. You know, what service he's in. I mean, if, if there are responsibility to support them, then we're going to meet that responsibility no matter what. And I, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. But we also, you know, we can accept more risk in the 160th because we have a special assessment selection process to get our pilots. And our pilots stay with us for, I'm not saying forever, but I'll give you an example. When you saw the movie Black Hawk Down and you see that little bird landing in the intersection and they pull out the two wounded operators that get shot, on, they were on Super 6-1. So one of the pilots in there was a guy, Carl Meyer, who I went through Green Platoon with in 88, early 88, February. That happened in 93, right? So he'd already been in the unit five years. He retired like two and a half years ago. Or not even two years ago. Maybe. It's from the unit. Yeah, and he was still flying <laughs> MH6 assault birds that whole time. So with that's that kinda, freaking awesome. That's be like you being on a team. I mean, you're going back into a building. Yep, been there, done that. Got a hundred of these t-shirts. You know, that knowledge and that competency and proficiency that you get out of being able to retain those pilots. What that really translates to is, you know, I'm willing. We're willing to push the envelope on uh, ops because we know we have that talent and we rely on those warrants, you know, primarily um, to you know, make good decisions um, and, and to push the envelope. We had an op up in uh, Mosul area and uh, they went long, right? This is, you know, grand guys doing SSC, it went long and I had to extend them beyond like 18 hours flight time, which is a long time. And they were taxiing back into one of the airfields up there to get gas. And one of the MH-60s clipped the side of a hangar with its rotor blades. And it was clearly from fatigue. And, you know, when we did the accident investigation, I told uh, my boss, a three-star, I said, I own that. And they said, what do you mean? I said, look, I know we've got to learn lessons from this. But the fact is, I extended them well beyond their day. And this was, you know, they weren't flying, you know, supplies back and forth. They're doing combat. The guys were tired. I took the risk, so I own that. You know, I mean, we we pushed them, and we paid mm-hmm. a price. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a small price, frankly, and I would have done it all over again. But so it costs a couple hundred grand for a, a rotor blade.
0: But, you know. What, what leadership lessons do you have when you look at yourself as a platoon commander in charge of eight birds to battalion commander?
1: So, uh, first of all, you know, <clears throat> I, I believe that leadership is a learned skill, not a natural skill. And that those, the skill sets required at different levels change, right? So as a PL, a platoon leader, right, it's direct leadership. Jocko, follow me. You know, um, we're going here. We're doing that, right? And you and your uh, troop. Um, but as you get more senior, now you've got these layers of bureaucracy in between you, right? Right. And you know, think back to when you're a young 0-1, 0-2 down in the teams, and you got you know that ancient dude who's an 0-5 up there, right? <laughs> and it was clearly clueless, because anybody who's above you is clueless, right? That's a you know common held belief by all. And and you know, I just kept learning, you know. So when I was, remember, I told you I was really worried about chronic fatigue and morale, and you know, families are fraying because of what's oh, this op tempo. So that uh, warrant I was telling you about, Carl Meyer, who was a Little Bird driver, and his wife, Cindy, who I'm still friends with to this day. One day I was walking around the hangar, and and she said, you know, you ought to go spend some time with these young troops, you know, because they want to hear from the battalion commander what's happening, you know. And it really resonated with me. So I blocked out, and this is a small leadership technique, but it was very effective for me. I blocked out two hours a week. And I went, and I never told anybody where I was going. And it wasn't an inspection, right? I wasn't coming over there and saying, Wilnick, why do you got a croaky on your freaking gla- sunglasses? <laughs> it was more, you know, just to sort of get a bird's, you know, a, a ground view of how things are going. And, you know, at first it was quite a, you know, quite a dust-up. You know, I'd walk into, you know, a Littleberg company and, you know, the guys are like, what the hell are you doing down here? <laughs> well, I said, I'm the commander of this outfit. I'd like to think I could come down here if I want. <laughs> but over time, they realized it was no threat. I made sure I never chewed anybody's ass when I was down there. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't about that. If I saw something particularly egregious, mm-hmm. I'd go back to the XO and say, hey, go down to, you know, Owen's hangar and police those dudes up. I'm the good cop, you're the bad cop kind of thing. But what I would do is spend time with troops, and it was very low threat. So I get them around, sit around, and talk with them. Hey, you know, what can I do uh, to make the unit better? You know, what do you think about? it? Are you going? To, I was a big pusher of off-duty education because of my personal background. I knew how you know how powerful it was, and uh, so I'd always encourage them about that. And I'd look for easy wins, low hanging fruit, you know, like if there was something going on that needed to be fixed, but they were just struggling through, you know, multiple forms and triplicate to get some (laughs) crap done or something, then I would short circuit that. And, you know, I've shared this before with other folks, but one day I was in the engine shop and we were turning aircraft from combat damage and, you know, maintenance. I mean, it was really, we could barely keep up with what we needed to have downrange. And I relied on these, you know, young eighteen, nineteen-year-old kids that were borescoping engines and, you know, doing stuff that they had no idea of probably their criticality to us maintaining the right number of aircraft to deploy. But I clearly knew. So I, you know, I'd come into their little engine shop this particular time, and I would call them all in, you know, ground, you know. In fact, uh, Cindy Meyer used to call it Uncle Clay's Story Hour, you know. So I'd sit in there and, you know, chat with them. But I'd always ask them, hey. You know, what, what could I do? You know, what can I do to, to make the unit better? What can I do to make your job easier? And this one young E-4 said to me, you know, sir, I max my Army physical fitness test, the APFT, you know, in Army lingo. And he said, but I got to go out and run with, like, the slowest people out there in formation run. You know, it's a bunch of garbage. You know, why don't we have an incentive PT program, which is pretty common. You know, you score above a certain mm-hmm. score and, you, you know, you can sort of do your own thing. And uh, I said, that's a good question. Let me get back to you. And that was about one in the afternoon. So I walked back up to the headquarters, got on an email, sent an email out to the first sergeants and said, Hey, do you have an incentive PT program? If you know, if not, why not? And should we have one? And they basically all wrote back and said, Yeah, look, we've been in combat. We just that kind of stuff has sort of fallen off our radar. We should have one. So, you know, I got with the sergeant major, typed up a Policy, you know, the adjutant more accurately typed it up. I signed it and <laughs> said if you get above whatever a two hundred ninety, it's a possible score of three hundred. You can PT on your own. And I walked right back down about two hours later to that same dude, you know, specialist, you know, I don't even remember his name, handed him the policy letter and said, Hey, thanks. You were right. We should have done this. It just fell off our radar. You've you know, you have changed battalion policy. Here is our incentive PT program you know of course that kid crowed about that you know and I mean six months later I'm hopping on a C-17 pulling a pump over to Iraq and the sergeant you know is I'm crawling into my fart sack you know getting ready to take my Ambien go to la la land and he uh, he said hey sir I just want to tell you you know that kid still just brags about changing policy but you know little things like that the force responds to that right they know you give a damn and which I do And, you know, they know they got a voice. And, of course, I didn't, you know. You know, why can't we have, you know, women in the barracks, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, why can't we run a prostitution ring out here? Well, you know, they're not going to get everything, you know. But, you know, I tried to, you know, make sure they understood they were appreciated. And, you know, that doesn't mean I don't hold the standard, right? I mean, you know, you got to earn the right to be in these units every day. And it ain't a job for life. But— I also needed, you know, they, they should have faith and confidence in a chain of command that we're going to do the best we can uh, and be transparent as we can. And, you know, I think it worked pretty well.
0: How about when you uh, elevated up to then regimental commander?
1: A little harder, right? And it got exponentially harder as a, a general officer. Um, but, again, now the bureaucracy increases more. And now, you know, as a battalion commander, I'm down and in, right? I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with my boss, a regimental commander, but really, my focus is combat, right, in my unit. As the regimental commander at the time, um, I also had a humongous budget. You know, I was the most expensive 06-level command in the Army by orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. By orders of magnitude. We were also geographically dispersed. I have a battalion up at Fort Lewis, Washington, 4160. I got a battalion in Savannah, Georgia, 3160, I got two battalions. Uh, operational battalions at Fort Campbell, plus a training battalion, plus an R&D outfit. I've got guys all over the world, and I'm, you know, I'm an 06. So I'm most of my time, that was the big Is Now it's up and out. Now I'm protecting my budget, right? Like, I'm the best-looking woman at the frat party. I mean, everybody wants to go out with me. They're trying to steal my cash, you know. So I'm, you know, and I'm an 06, and I'm dealing with GOs, you know, Um So it was much more resource stuff. I'm looking two or three ridgelines down. What do I need to do to make sure that we're adequately resourced and that we remain, you know, quoting General or Admiral McRaven, we maintain that comparative advantage over our adversaries. So that was my focus. That was the biggest difference. It wasn't down and in. It wasn't combat anymore. It was taking care of the regiment, Down the road and uh, making sure that they had what they needed, and that was really this. I mean, that was a great training ground for being a a flag officer because that's exactly what you know when you were aiding for McGuire. I bet most of his stuff was resource stuff, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. He was. um, That's what. That's what he. That's what he did. That's what you do. You know, man training equipment. It's about money.
1: Title ten. And
0: well, I'm sure you know the Navy. (laughs) The the SEAL teams don't always do well in that category, so it's rough sometimes. (laughs) Um, and like you said, especially when you're going up, you know, against the air force and just the, the amount of platforms that they have is freaking rough. Yeah. Cause they need so much money for each one of those platforms. It's, it's like way more expensive than a boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Much more. And I think now though, we're now we're, we got our, we sort of got our swim lanes, right? So we, you know, we do, we're rotary wing. That's what we do. We do have unmanned. We got, um, uh, Pred Gray Eagles, which are basically a predator, you know, improved predator. Um, but, you know, we're very focused on what we do. AFSOC's very focused on what we do. And, you know, going back to my tenure at uh, AFSOC as a young captain, those relationships that I built with those Air Force guys really paid huge dividends later, right? Like, I, I'm a personal friends with the Air Force Special Ops Commander, Jim Slife. You know, I mean, he was the chief of staff. It's so common when I was a three. You know, we had a, we have a personal friendship. Scott Howell out of Fort Bragg, we're personal friends. I mean, when I call him and say something, it's there's a trust factor that goes both ways. And it's with numerous other. So, I mean, that made my life a lot easier and really broadened my sort of horizons as an officer. Realize that, you know, hey, it really does take a, a joint force to get this done and understand the different perspectives, you know.
0: Yeah, we. Were, I was really. My last deployment was in was in Ramadi, and just. I yeah, mean, we, our, yeah. we we wouldn't have been able to do anything without the Army and the Marine Corps to to have our back. And it, yeah, QRF, yeah, all uh, that stuff. QRF, Casavac, yeah. just every everything that we needed, we needed from those guys. They needed to support us, and we needed to support them. It was just an awesome relationship. Um, so you get done with that tour, yeah, and
1: then what's next? So I had been deferred from the war college like three times. You know, I was supposed to go. Be, you're supposed to go before O six command, as you know. You know, but I never went. I was deferred, and so I ended up going after, and I made flag officer while I was in the war college. I mean, I didn't get announced because I had to go through all the joint credit stuff you have to do. You know, <laughs> and uh, but I ended up deploying to Afghanistan as um, part of uh, NTMA, National Training Mission Afghanistan. And I stood up the Afghan Special Mission Wing to support their uh, Afghan commandos and uh, the Ketehas wow. and all those dudes. And that was another education. So I'm in Kabul. Um, And, you know, we stood up this fleet of uh, this unit of MI-17s and uh, ISR birds, U-28, sort of, you know, not with all the high-speed kit that you got on an American bird. But fixed-wing ISR platforms, stood up all the units, got the funding through uh, DOD. And it's still, I mean, they're still banging targets to this day. I ran into the unit commander a couple years ago. (laughs) He was at a conference here or something. We got caught up. But... I mean, that was another real growing experience, right, because it's all about money, and I'd have to brief the Pentagon, the Afghan Resource Oversight Council, you know, why do we buy MI-17s and not American? And I'm like, well, you said we had to be out here December of 14. There's no way I can train them on a new airplane between now and then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm all about buying American, but, you you know, the Russian, the MIs, how many birds did they get for their... 28, 30, 30 helicopters, 28 were operational. The ministers and everything always wanted to fly on them, so I, I bought two extra just to take care of the VIP stuff, which was a, you know, we would, you know, it was a wicked pain in my ass. But, and then we about I think it was 15, uh, 15 fixed-wing birds, and we were split across. We had a squadron in uh, Condus. We had a squadron in Hellman. And then we had two in Kabul, and we did both uh, CT counterterrorism and counter narcotics. So DEA was a player in there, and that was actually part of the negotiation. The DEA wanted to make sure that we were still going to hit mm-hmm. DEA targets. So, and which we, you know, I gave them my personal guarantee. You know, we're not going to blow that mission off. It's really not something the military wants to get into. But you know, we we kept that as a primary mission set for them. Who's running training for the Afghan pilots? Well, that was interesting, right? I mean, trying to find an Afghan that can read, first of all, back then, because the schools have been shut down for, you know, what, 20 years or so. So we had a core of pilots that had been flying, that had been trained by the Russians that were there, a few, but not enough. So we ran some of our pilots through um, UAE. They had some training there that they go over to UAE or by Abu Dhabi, and they go through, I think it was Horizons Flight Academy, it's probably still there, and then we'd We'd pick them, you know. And it was funny because the DEA, you know, they're like, you know, they're very worried, understandably so, about insider attacks, right? Mm-hmm. So they came to me one day and they said, hey, we got to give these guys a polygraph. And I'm like, okay. Well, what are we going to ask them? Because, I mean, everybody steals there, right? You know, patronage is part of the deal, right? You know, hey, we'd take my sister to, uh, you know, condos or whatever. Here's 20 bucks. I mean, that, in the mil- U.S. military, that would be, like you'd be Prosecuted for that. Over there, that's just normal. normal to it. So I'm talking to the DEA guy and I said, So, <laughs> you know, here's the way I think it needs to go. Okay, Jocko, you want to come to the special mission wing? Here, put on this little light detector thing. Well, they actually had a finger thing, which mm-hmm. I think was, remained I skeptical about that. But <laughs> I said, Okay, Jocko, did you steal anything today? The answer is yes. Did you feel bad about it? And do you promise not to steal tomorrow? Okay, you're a go. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a different, I mean, They're you know, different culture. Yeah. You know, so we had to be, you know, so vetting was a big thing. And then, you know, the insider attacks really got worse, you know, later. In fact, one of our families was a National Guard guy in the SOWF that was training with the Rangers. He was a guard guy out of Utah, Brent Taylor. Shot and killed, I mean, by an Afghan doing a ruck march. Pulled out his pistol and uh, shot sure. the dude. But... You know, that was a challenge. A human, it's always human talent, right? Humans are more important than hardware. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and it's true. You know, getting the right guys. But, hey, listen, they, right after I left, they hit their, did their first NVG, uh, you know, I think it was to the Y or something, mm-hmm. mission down near j Man, I couldn't have been prouder of those dudes. And, they you know, I get feedback, you know, periodically from folks that they're still, I mean, they're by far the most successful aviation unit over there.
0: Yeah, that's outstanding. We, we had a a guy on this podcast, Captain Ahn, who was a who was a South Vietnamese pilot mm. and flew Sog missions. And awesome. I mean, just freaking epic. But he got he got trained over here. Yeah, you know, yeah, Fort got, Rucker probably yeah, right. Yeah, he got yeah. trained over here and then went back over and um, man, if you get a chance, listen to that one. He's Major An. Major uh He was a captain and then he eventually made major his one of his well his last mission. He was got shot. Um, bird's going down. He's trying to save the bird as he's going down. Everything's on fire. The uh I guess the yoke, what, what what is he holding? He's holding the cyclic. Yeah, yeah. So he's holding the cyclic. Everything's too hot for him to hold on to. He oh, can't yeah. hold on to it. So he's got his hands up by his chest and he sees the bird's going to crash if he doesn't just grab hold of these controls. So he just freaking reaches down, grabs hold of the controls, gets the gets the pilot, gets the aircraft to the ground. Uh, his hands are just burned Ooh, beyond man, anything. And he goes to undo his seatbelt and his fingers fall off. He goes to undo, but he manages to get it off, you know, hooked on something and get his seatbelt off. Goes to open. The door, his the rest, of his other hand, fingers fall off. Um, eventually, Damn. gets out of the aircraft get, and gets away. Um, gets back to friendlies. Ended up going to hospital. Loses both of his hands. Um, you know, carries on for a little while. The war, the war ends. Ends up in a in a communist prison camp gets, you know, can't do, can't do anything really. I mean, he's got, he yeah. doesn't have hands. Kind so they eventually about. just kind of let him out of the prison camp and he, he goes on multiple escape attempts trying to get out of there. And eventually he does make it out makes it to America. But, um,
1: I'll yeah. definitely, I'll write the, after we're done, I'll write that number down I'll yeah. definitely, I just subscribe. I'm going to, yeah, I'll definitely listen. I'd love to hear. Yeah. That.
0: Those, those King Bee pilots over there, um, this is also a guy who was going into a hot LZ where they'd already lost one or two birds. And he says, you know, he just takes his, leaves his crew chief there, leaves his co-pilot. He just takes his gunner. Because he's like, hey, we're going in. There's, chances aren't looking good. I'm not risking anybody else. We're
1: going. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you don't see that very often. <sighs> Freaking awesome. Inspiring, yeah. So you get that stood up. What's what's next on so then I get I take command of the Army Special Ops Aviation Command at Fort Bragg. I was the second commander, followed the very capable, uh, now Lieutenant General Retired, Kevin Mangum, who was my boss at the regiment. I took over for him there. And really, that's a Title X command, right? Remember I told you I was focused up and out as a regimental commander? Yeah. So the Army leadership recognized that they needed a general officer that sort of took care of the trained man and equip stuff and let the regiment really focus on warfighting. So I did two years there, um, you know, and really it's like a lot of budget stuff Mm -hmm. and personnel stuff. Then I went to Korea as the DCG of the 2nd Infantry Division from 14 to 15, and that was a blast. I was going to say, how awesome was that? That was. I mean, my family, my wife had just finished her master's and was teaching, and my kids, one kid was in college, the other ones were in high school. So I said, you know, hey, I'm, you guys, I'll do this year, and uh you know, I mean, other than not having my family with me, I mean, I was a PT machine, man. I ate, you know, you know, Captain Crunch Berry and freaking protein bars and worked out in the gym every day, man. I mean, you know, and uh, dealt with the Koreans, learned a lot about, you know, the Village Idiot up north there, KJU. And, uh, I mean, it was an awesome, awesome tour. I loved it. I loved Korea. Loved the people there. You know, and how awesome is it that you get to
0: go from your entire your career of aviation, and then boom, you're deputy commander of the second infantry division?
1: Yeah, I mean it was cool. I had a great boss. I mean, you know, and uh, I mean, I learned again. You know, it's, it's all about the journey, right? There is real no destination in leadership. You're just continuing to learn and get better, and you get a lot of failure around that. You know, the, along the way, which makes you better ultimately. But Korea was broadened my stuff. First of all, I hadn't really spent much time in the conventional military, except for that one battalion. The rest time I'm in soft, you know. So I'm like, you know, they're giving me some army report about you know readiness, and I'm like, mm. they said, so sir, clearly you know about this. So I was like, mm, nope, don't even know what that acronym means, you know. Yeah, I'm working without tools here, boys. So I need you to step up, you know. Uh, but you, you come with that sort of, hey, we can do this. And, you, you know, I took more of a focus on the human side, you know, and, you know, building the unit and doing a lot of leader development stuff and PTing the crap out of them every chance I got, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was, it was a blast. And I mean, that, really that was
0: didn't. a one-year tour?
1: One year, yeah. And then I came back. I was the deputy CG, probably. I, you know, my boss was Tovo, Ken oh, okay. Tovo. Yeah, was, yeah, he was just great freaking dude. awesome. Best boss. Best boss ever, yeah. man. He so was, he
0: was the Siege of Soda commander when I was in Ramadi.
1: And see, I was in Balad when you were okay. over there because I saw Tovo. Mark Irwin was the TF-16 commander then, who's now the CEO of Bardstown Bourbon Company, by the way. I'm not sure how that skill set translated, but he makes some killer I think I bourbon. do know how that translates, <laughs> for it's all good. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I worked for Tovo for two years and uh, just under two years. Loved it. Great dude. Yeah, he, he –
0: he gave us such incredible support, you know, to, to yeah. my task unit down there in Ramadi. You know, it was, a, it was a slug fest down there, and he knew it, and he just was awesome. was just outstanding.
1: Yeah, Colin said the same thing. Um, you know, a funny story about Toby. He had a great sense of humor, right? You know, he's sort of a quiet, dry sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And so his aide was this guy, uh, Carter. I won't use his last name, but Carter. Uh, just in case he listens to this podcast. So his, the way our office was laid out is he had an XO, it was an 05, and then he had an 8, who was an 04. But he worked right outside my desk. And so, you know, uh, great guy. Mustang, like me, was Ranger Regiment guy, went to West Point, and then went SF, and, you know, just a stud. His wife's a doctor in the Air Force, actually. A- anyway, so we got a mutually antagonistic relationship, you know, one-liners. So it started this war between us. So uh, my, my RTO, my communicator, was an SF guy. And his wife was the manager of Victoria's Secrets in Fayetteville. <laughs> and uh, so he was going on an overseas trip with Tovo. And Tovo had two knee replacements. So every time he went through TSA checkpoint, he got wanded. So we put a, uh, we put a pair of, like, I don't know, size 50 thong uh, women's skivvies inside of, uh, of Carter's coin bag, right? Then we put a throwaway on top. So, like, you know, on his on his day and a half back. So he opens it up. He's like, oh, you think you're going to get me with these underwear? Well, he doesn't check his coin bag. So he goes through the Fayetteville International Airport there and uh, – Tovo's getting wanded, the bag goes through the, you know, the x-ray machine, of course, you know, the TSA one's like, hey, we got to check. Yep. Yes, ma'am. No, it's my coin bag right here, right in front of Tovo. She pulls out those skivvies. You know? <laughs> and uh, of course, he knew it was me behind, you know, the master criminal there. So then he starts uh, having Tovo sign these, like, his command photos and putting them in a frame, like, with messages, you know, Clay, I know I'm your mentor, you love me. (laughs) And he put them in my bookcase, but I didn't have the key to get (laughs) my shit out of there, right? So I'm like, all right. So I have my XO blow up a command photo of me, like, you know, the drop-down ceiling tiles, you know, they're whatever, they're 16 by 16 or something. And I put my picture over it and put it above the ceiling tile above his desk (laughs) with like a little note, you know, for like three days. I'm sitting in my office and, uh, you know, waiting for him. And all of a sudden, you're like, what the, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, you know, we should have been more responsible uh, as, uh, you know, senior gofos, but we weren't. At least I wasn't.
0: (laughs) you still got to have a good time.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tovo was definitely the adult leadership. I was the comic relief throughout.
0: And then what was after that?
1: So I went to the J3 at SOCOM, Okay. yeah, that was March of 17. My wife joined me and the kids, we had a, you know, we had we, we finished the school year and then they came down in June. And you know, there I, uh, again, I didn't know what was next. I was 39 years at that point or, you know, closing in on 40. Trying to figure out if you should make a career of it Well, or yeah, not. you know, I mean, I was still waiting <laughs> for something to open up and, you know, like McDonald's <laughs> or Dairy Queen or something. Um, and, uh, you know, and there, you know uh, General Thomas was a SOCOM commander at the time, and he's now the chairman of the board of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation and my neighbor. And uh, he said, hey, I want you to, you know, I'm thinking about moving you to be the chief of staff, you know, and then let's see what happens with uh, a potential third star. Certainly not a, uh, not a lock. But, you know, I, uh, I started thinking about that, and, you know, I said, hey, look, I'll stay if you need me to stay, if you're asking me. I think I'm ready to ready to get out. I mean it'll be close to 41 by the time I, you know, punch out and I'm sort of done, you know. And uh, so he, you know, was very gracious and said, "Yeah, hey good you listen, you know, you got your time on the rock." And I was like, "Yeah, like twice over, you know." And um, when I retired there on McDill, my youngest, who's now just finished up his sophomore year at Clemson, was like 3 months younger than I was when I joined. You know, so you know, I go in at 17 and I'm out at 58. So, you know. How'd you end up at, you know, how, how'd you end up at the um,
0: Special, Special Operations Ops. Warrior? Well,
1: I wasn't on my radar, right? I really didn't know what I was gonna do. Um, I figured I'd, you know, be one of those, you know, dudes, you know, trying to sell helicopters to somebody or something. <laughs> Uh, but General Brown, who you know, we discussed before we went live, was the chairman of the board of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation. And I, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew that Joe McGuire had been sort of nommed for the to go to National Counterterrorism Center. I know that was oh, his right. last gig when he had as a deputy, I think, up there before yep. he retired. And that was sort of in the works. And they asked me would you be interested, they didn't, you know, they, would you be interested, do you have any interest in running a nonprofit? And to be honest with you, I hadn't really thought about it, you know, and so I, um, I almost said, no, I think, you know, I'm going to go, I'll do that later. Let me go make some money and then, you know, then I'll do that. But I thought, you know what, you know, just take a look. I said, hey, sir, you know, and this was not the only thing he talked to me about in the conversation. It was almost like a little sidebar at the end. I said, yeah, I'd like to learn more. And I didn't even know it was the SOWF. I just knew it was a nonprofit because I was in a running. I was a finalist to be the president of the Citadel at the time, mm-hmm. which would have been a cool, you know, leader development job, right? Which I got xed out by a four-star graduate. I can't believe it, you know. Um, General Walters is doing great there, but then that thing came through with uh, for Joe McGuire to go up there, and I didn't realize it at the time, but he was a big advocate for me, and I remain. Uh, Uh, grateful to him and I ended up taking over for him I graduated I mean I did my retirement ceremony August 24th of 18 and September 1st I was wearing my little special SOWF shirt and figuring you know and figuring out how to panhandle for money you know
0: so tell us about the mission um, of the special operations warrior foundation
1: so, you know, the for- the foundation has just had our 41st anniversary. It was started in Desert One when we lost those eight Americans, three Marines, uh, five airmen, left behind 17 kids, and there was a commitment by the members of that task force to take care of those kids. So that's how we started, and we've evolved over time. Today, um, we have two primary missions. We provide immediate financial assistance to severely wounded, ill, or injured special ops personnel. Um And that comes in the form of an overnight check for up to 5K. If another organization like Navy SEAL Foundation takes care of uh, their folks and, you know, we work together with them. In fact, I had dinner with uh, the director of Navy SEAL Foundation last night and her husband, Mm -hmm. Bill. And so we do that. We overnight uh, a check to them. And that's really put the dog in the kennel money, fly in your mother to watch the kids so you can be with your loved one. And we also send them a device called the Echo Show, which is sort of like an Alexa with a video capability. So they can communicate with their family from the hospital room. They can yeah. stream videos. And during COVID, that's been a really uh, big hit. That's one mission. But our primary mission is a very unique approach to educating the children of fallen special ops personnel and the children of all Medal of Honor recipients, all living and deceased and non-SOF, right? So we cover all of them. And our program, is we call it Cradle to Career, it starts in preschool. We fund preschool for up to 8K per year per child. We fund unlimited tutoring from that time all the way through college graduation. We pay for their college visits. We bring our high school kids, about 30 a year or so, plus or minus, to Tampa for a college prep course called Epic Education Preparation Information Conference. We talk to them about picking a major, picking a school, writing your essay for your common app, financial management, study skills, time management, um, a lot of leader development stuff. Very, very effective. We pay you know we pay for all their college and we don't care if they go to a trade school you want to be a plumber you want to be a hairstylist that's good it, we'll we'll fund that if you go to an ivy we'll fund that there is no limitation it's your passion and potential that'll drive where you go and we're going to support you all the way through um we have a mentoring program keep in mind these are kids in a single parent home most yep. likely yep. right and you've been through it. You know the trauma that goes behind that casualty, right? That's the, that's the real tragedy. It's just unfolding there. And so we have a mentoring program that starts in eighth grade with these kids. You know, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up, Jocko? You know, if I'm your dad and I'm telling you, you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I'm not listening to you. So we do that, and that continues all the way through helping them secure internships. We pay for study abroad. We pay for internships. We pay a 5K stipend for them to relocate to do an internship. Um, we have a special needs program that, uh, we got about 25 to 30 kids with varying degrees of special needs, and I consider special needs kids that have emotional issues associated with the loss of their parent, not what you would traditionally call special needs, right? Because, you know, listen, their challenges, even in the discipline, are as a result of their parent's service, uh, at least in part, I would say. Uh, Not that there's not accountability there, because there is. That's part of it, right? But we fund that. And you take these kids from preschool. We invest in preschool. Why? Because we've seen that that pays dividends down the road. Last year, we had 41 kids graduate high school. 38 went right to college. Two joined the military, and one took a year off, well above the national average. We had 93% of our kids last year graduate college on time with a degree. And that's consistent, and the numbers just get better and better and better. And these are kids that are, again, single-parent home. Um, And it's a great mission. Today we have 996 kids in the program. The youngest is a – just last January was a year old, Dustin Ard. His father, Dustin Gabriel Ard, was a sergeant first class in third group, was shot and killed in Afghanistan. And, I mean, our education counselors who are really the tip of the spear for us there's six of them said he's class of 2042 and we make a promise and we say okay hey Dustin we got you all the way through you know you can count on it we're gonna fund that and that's how we we do that in accounting and everything that we're gonna fund that through and you know to see these kids reach their full potential after sacrificing for their country which they didn't necessarily sign up for I mean to me it's a great calling, and, uh, you know, am I, you know, making as much money as I could selling helicopters to somebody? Probably not, but um, I, I look forward to coming to work every day.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, as I as started the whole thing, talking about Steve Voigt and just learning that impact that, that the organization has had on him, obviously, and that, you know, like like I was saying earlier, I didn't do anything for Steve Voigt. You know, I was his friend. Yeah, yeah. but. The fact I I didn't do anything, um, I tried to serve the best I could, keep him in my mind. But for, to have an organization that actually steps in and take care of these kids, it's just it's just outstanding, and it's an outstanding organization. And, and I mean, you know, look at the impact, the the mentorship with an eighth grader, like everybody could use that, but especially someone that doesn't have their parent. So. Just an awesome program. I appreciate what you're doing and and what your whole team is doing. Um, I know that the I know people are going to be interested in you know in in trying to find it so they can help out. I know it's uh, specialops.org. That's correct. Is is the website? Instagram is Soft Warrior Fund FND. Uh, Twitter is Soft Warrior Fund FND. So it's S O F Warrior F N D. Facebook is at Warrior Foundation. And you, you also actually have a YouTube channel, which is Special Operations Warrior Foundation. I, I mean, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Echo, you got anything?
2: No, sir. My pleasure.
1: No, same here, guys. I really appreciate the time. And I, I just got to tell you, didn't you know? I didn't know ahead of time you were going to tell that story and read that letter. Uh, but that was really awesome, man. I mean, you know, and to me, it, you, you get it. You know what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, uh, and I really appreciate you sharing that.
0: Yeah, I was tempted to do it in Steve's Steve's voice, which would have been like this, man. He had the most <laughs> epic voice. Uh, I wish I could hear it one more time, man. Um, Clay, thanks for coming on. Thank, thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, more important, thanks for your service. Thanks for your service in the Marine Corps. Hoorah. In the Army, in Special Operations, and and. Most important, thanks for the service that you continue to provide for the entire special operations
1: community. Thank you for taking care of our brothers and sisters in arms. No worries. It's my honor and a pleasure. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm, in, I'm a, a small part of the team, but there's a whole group of committed folks at the SOWF. We're very small, but uh, 100% committed to the success of these families and being there for them, you know. So it's, uh, it's an honor. Thanks for the support. And with that,
0: General Clay Hotmacher has left the building. And once again, Echo Charles, seems like we can do more. Yes. And at a minimum, it seems like we can do better. Better, yeah. What can we do to do
2: better? Well, we can do a lot for sure. Uh, you know, not all of us are going to be flying through biblical dust storms. Just. Save people and support people. Not yeah. all of us.
0: Those those dust storms are crazy. Yes, sir. You don't want to be in one. Yeah. Flying
2: a helicopter. I'm no, going to tell sir. you that. I, I imagine that that is true. But in the event of us trying to support others, we need to be as capable as possible. True. We'll just say that. Let's
0: say you do, for whatever reason, have to go through a dust storm in any situation, in any scenario. Capacity, yeah, How can we be more ready for that?
2: Well. Let's start with physical. Physical capability as much as you can. Can't just start neglecting your physical capability. So we're working out. We're doing jujitsu, hopefully. It's a big deal. I feel like we've slacked on making it a big deal as it needs to be made. It
0: should be. It is a big deal. I think so, too.
2: So through our workouts, exercising, uh, we're reading, hopefully. Some people slack on that. You got to be honest. Not this guy. No, I'm no, freaking reading you, so much; no, it's ridiculous. No. Yeah, but you know what?
0: Right now, I seem to be. I. You ever heard that thing when you're mining, you're mining, and you hit a vein of like gold? Yeah, right? You yeah. hit a vein of silver. I'm like, I like hit a vein with reading. I'm just starting to get these books that are just stacking up, and each one I'm reading, I like open. Oh, I wonder what this one's about, and I start going. It's a vein. I just find yeah. a vein. So yeah. that fear that I want. Oh, that a fear. When we started this podcast, I was like, yeah, I probably got 10, 15 books to cover.
2: We'll be good. Boy, oh. was I wrong. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Yep. So, yes. So, we're it. reading. So, we're reading, working out physical, mental, all that stuff. Moral, too, by the way. But that's a whole other story. Let's start with physical, we're mental. Deep. <laughs> so, we, in our. Are you going to mo- help us
0: out with our <laughs> moral <laughs> and spiritual. Maybe health maybe. at this time okay. maybe not at this time okay
2: we're distinguished with physical so through physical development we we might need some supplementation it helps mm-hmm. don't worry jocko has supplementation for us jocko fuel you know i was
0: about to commit a sin the other day what cracked open a discipline go i know nope, i stayed on the straight and narrow path my spiritual health was that's, strengthened.
2: but that's not a sin so we're good i don't get it that's not a sin mm. is it
0: i said i was about to commit a sin
2: Oh, and instead of committing the sin and then I,
0: and then I cracked open a discipline go and I was able to get back on the yeah, path. Yeah,
2: you were set free. I got on you. the righteous path. The righteous <laughs> path. Boom. Spiritual health. Yeah. I think we can, you know, it's important. There you go. It's important 100%. Guaranteed. Yes. So, discipline go you mentioned, mm-hmm. right? Can you can discipline be in a can? Can you just have a can of discipline? Well, actually,
0: factually, there you
2: go. Well, I'm okay. drinking it right now. Okay, so instead of this, okay, discipline go in a can is for us, those of us who are kind of down for the energy drink situation, but we're not down with the stigma or what that energy drink situation might entail. Does entail from time from for the most part? Not anymore though.
0: No, we're good.
2: Yes. Clean energy, healthy. After you drink it, you're actually better off. You're I'm better actually off.
0: trying to pull you off topic and you're just bringing it right
2: back. Well, good for you. I, look, these topics, I'm not saying are unimportant, the ones that you're bringing up or whatever, and they're, they're just for another time. Yeah. So we're talking about Discipline Go right now. Um, also, Discipline Go is also in other formats mm-hmm. powder, capsules. Capsules. Yeah. So, those, those are
0: good. When you're, when you're rolling into something, you got to speak you got to make something happen you're going to be you're going to be th- having to think on your feet boom get yeah.
2: it so it's a it's a all formats it's it's a mental it's a mind boost mhm saying? so yeah boom some people drink energy drinks out of habit some people drink energy drinks out of oh i just need a little bit of caffeine or whatever all that's part of the game too but this one gives you an actual mental cognitive boost and physical. Boom. So, yeah, get that one instead of your whack, <laughs> poisonous <laughs> and energy And spiritual, spiritual boost. Uh, well, you know. You know? That, that's, again, that's what a whole we're talking thing. about. Uh, also, we got uh, health supplementations uh, or supplementation for physical. So, we got uh, joint warfare for your joints. Keep them in the game. Don't even have to worry about them anymore. Also, super krill oil. There's a lot of studies. I'm not going to say the studies. There's a lot of studies that prove mm-hmm. the benefits of krill oil.
0: Yeah. You know what's crazy is... The subscription rates on krill oil and joint warfare at at Jocko
2: Fuel—they're mm. awesome. Yeah,
0: because people get them and they're like, "Oh yeah, subscribe." Yeah, you will the, feel it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just part of the routine now. Because yeah, we don't like worrying about our joints. And here's the thing: if you have stairs, if, you if your bedroom is upstairs, and you wake up in the morning and you got to walk downstairs, you know, when you wake up, that's when you're the most stiff, mm-hmm. arguably. You're going to feel the difference from day to day. If you're on the super oil and joint warfare, that's the best combo, my opinion. Our opinion. Mm -hmm. We'll just say general consensus, best combination. You're going to feel the difference if you're on it versus not on it. When you're walking down the stairs in the morning, that's the time you're going to really feel it. Not to mention when you're lifting, but, you know, it's, of course, a whole other thing. Also, for your immunity, vitamin D3 and Cold War, two options for immunity. Boom also supplemental protein in the form of a dessert mm-hmm. best tasting protein mix on the market i kind
0: of went i hadn't had any mint chocolate for a while probably like 2 weeks mm-hmm. cuz i just been just been dialing in the pe- the peanut butter yeah which is let's face it the peanut butter is just freaking delicious i'm facing that fully yeah yes. but then last night for my dessert after i had chicken thighs yeah. That my son cooked on the Traeger, they okay. might have been the best chicken I've ever had. Think yeah, about that. I believe I've eaten a lot of chicken.
2: Yeah,
0: that might have been the best chicken. I and it was just him and me, and so we just were standing there eating, it. <laughs> <laughs> like plates, <laughs> whatever. We're just standing there. Yeah. He's got a big, big tray full of chicken thighs, and we're just eating it. And I eat it, and I ate. And it was delicious. I ate a bunch, but guess what? I wanted when I was done. Dessert. I wanted dessert, bro. I wanted dessert.
2: And I said, peanut
0: butter. Wait, I could be wrong. Peanut butter and chicken. Is this? This seems weird, right? It's kind of weird. Yeah. Anyways, this the way this chicken was cooked, peanut butter wasn't going to be the thing. I went back old school. Back to my roots. Mint chocolate chip. That. She was
2: good to go perfect right on time. So good, yeah. so, so
0: freaking good. So, this is Nobel Prize.
2: <laughs> be little,
0: be little <laughs> okay. who huh? formulated these things, you know, like put it together. Mm-hmm. I think I'm thinking Nobel Prize, Nobel, what pre- what Nobel Eat, Nobel Eat e- Prize. I don't know, peace prize
2: straight up. Well, not peace, uh, bro. It brings peace. Let's face it, brought peace to me last night. Well, your boy. <laughs> does your boy have a recipe for your uh, I will chicken? find out. I will find out,
0: and there could be luck involved, because let's face it, you know, it was that good where you say, man, if you could duplicate this tomorrow, yeah. I'd be impressed. Yeah. One night, I'm really impressed. Two nights, now you've yeah. got a situation. You need yeah. to open a restaurant.
2: That's interesting. I have a, I have a chicken thigh recipe, too. Chicken thighs are just good
0: to go, too.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah you you, are, you do start ahead of the game with the thighs, in my opinion, too. Oh, yeah. Some people don't prefer that. I do. Obviously, okay. you do too, but I got a recipe too. I, that's why it interests me. Okay. Very interested to see this. Go head to head. Let's have a little cook off. And then you have the milk for the. Oh, you know, you want so any good. dessert with that? Yeah, I do. I want the mulk. milk right now. Yes, sir. <clears throat> uh, so, yes, these uh, items, this supplementation is available at jockofuel.com. But if you want to go online, you don't got to shop online. Go to Wawa. Boom. Actually, Wawa is just for the energy drinks. Just for Keep the Keep that drinks. in mind. Yes. If you
0: want the rest of the stuff, you can get a vitamin shop. Mm hmm. And if you want to get this stuff delivered to your house for free,
2: mm-hmm.
0: well, how's it going to get there for free? We're going to have to pay something. No, for free. Mm. Go to jockofuel.com. Subscribe. Subscribe to that whatever it is you want. It'll come whenever you want it. It'll come there for free. Boom! How freaking legit can, is that? Yeah, yeah. That's
2: that's the,
0: so that. we can do competition with the the elephant in the room, well, yeah. right? Yeah. The elephant in the room got some weight behind it. Yeah. Hey, but we're, all, we're over here scrapping, yeah. right? We're over here scrapping. Oh, yeah. oh you want to throw down some free shipping? Watch this.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah a Good way to support Something very secure about a free shipping scenario. It's yeah. like one of those things you just don't have to worry about. You know, it goes deep. Also, originmain.com. This is American-made stuff. Mm-hmm. Good, durable goods, as it's called. I didn't quite know what that meant. It just sounded durable, which I like, of course. But it's like jeans, American-made denim. Uh, we got some hoodies on there. We got some shirts on there. We got some jujitsu stuff on there. Now, when I say American-made, this is from the cotton that's grown in South Carolina, or is it North Carolina? The Carolinas. We'll it's say. in America. I'll tell you that. The actual cotton, the seeds. It's from actually America. different. It's
0: actually multiple locations yeah. where the cotton is grown. Boom. Multiple locations.
2: In America. Yes, sir. Ah, Boom. Man, so All right. the way up, and at the end of the chain, you got a jujitsu gi. You got some denim jeans yes, made 100% you know. uh, g- grown and sewn in America. Same thing with the boots. By the way, Rift gi. Yes, sir. The Rift gi it is another
0: format of clothing. I, I, w- I don't know what else to make with that thing, but that material that the Rift gi is, if you put it on, if you wear a Rift gi, you will not. You, look. You may wear another gi at some point because you have to, mm-hmm. but you won't be happy about it. No. That rift <sighs> gi is freaking legit. I don't know what it's, else to make. What else can we make with
2: that? Well, we could go deep and make some shorts with that.
0: Make no. a make a casual jacket of some sort. I was thinking like, uh you know, when you go to you go to Mexico yeah. and you get one of the you know like the little Baja jacket thing. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Oh yeah, it's like a it's pullover, like a polo Like a yeah, yeah. Maybe one of those. Maybe. Yeah, it's possible, yeah. That'd be dope. I think there's a lot of options given the, yeah, the the fabric and the whole thing. Here's the thing. Is it a catch-22? And I oftentimes uh, think about this, not under important circumstances, just wondering, is it a catch-22 to have, like, comfort like that for you? It's not quite austere,
0: is it? Mm, That's a good point. But we are highly focused on capability, right? Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. yeah. So not only does it comfortable it's also highly capable because you go to wash a regular gi
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then you dry it out takes nine days in the dryer to dry it out a
2: regular yeah. gi bro. this thing's this thing's dry in 14 minutes yep. <laughs> it's functionality bro it's yep. not about comfort no. back off functionality and sustainability in yeah. the field bro what if the what if you got a regular key on and then you're rolling, it's hard. You're rolling with somebody, I don't know, harder than you, they go harder than you, they're mm-hmm. better than you, whatever, they have more skills. And that gi is rubbing against your neck, not even in a submission, just rubbing against your neck versus the riff gi, not rubbing against your neck. Mm-hmm. Or it could be rubbing against your neck, you don't feel that kind of but stuff. But it doesn't feel bad. You're too focused on your defense. Right. See what I'm saying? So I get it, you're right, okay. So you're with just, me. Yes, uh, info assimilated. Jeans, so yes. Jeans,
0: boots, t-shirts. Go to OriginUSA.com is what we're saying.
2: Yes, sir. And Get cool stuff. Grab something. Speaking of cool stuff, Jocko has a store called Jocko Store. Cool name, cool stuff. Discipline equals freedom. Shirts, hats, hoodies, some soap on there. Warrior mm-hmm. Kid soap, Jocko soap, Trooper soap, killer soap, mm-hmm. the black charcoal activated <laughs> antibacterial soap.
0: Have you ever seen those videos like on uh – Social media or whatever, and they're just under the broad topic of satisfying. Yes. Have you ever seen these things? I I
2: don't watch those videos, but I I do. My
0: daughters will watch, quote, satisfying videos. Yeah, mine too. Right? It's it's like a piece of jello getting sliced. It's real weird (laughs) stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't get it, but the closest thing I have is when you take a black soap, Mm -hmm. which is killer soap. You wouldn't think that you could clean yourself with black soap, yeah. <laughs> but it works. Yeah,
2: just, it's so satisfying. Just, <laughs> I, I do understand. And yeah, every once in a while you come across something, and you're like, yeah, that is, I guess, given what you're saying as far as satisfying goes. Yeah, it's true. And yes, the killer soap uh, experience, we'll say, does fall under that category. It kind of has a, uh, what do you call it? It's not abrasive. Mm. What's the less, or ab- what do you call it? Ex- exfoliation or I don't know. It's something in there that g- provides a little scrub. There you go. Look I'm at saying? this guy with the exfoliation on that one. <laughs> Nonetheless, <laughs> that's on Jocko's store as well. Um, these are uh, th- these are American-made soaps too, straight up. Yeah. No chemicals in this kind of stuff. By a kid, by the way, yeah. that build, building a business, yes. a warrior kid. Aiden, the man yeah. providing. Also, uh, we have a subscription situation as well on Jocko's store, it's called the Shirt Locker. So these designs are a little bit more, I don't know how to explain them, I'm gonna try. They're a little bit more maybe creative, maybe fun, maybe uh, they might jump out at you a little bit more. A lot of people have been contacting me saying that they want the shirt from like two months ago. I have bad news and I have potential good news. Bad news is you can't get it. (laughs) It's Because it's, it was for that month, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If you're a subscriber, you'll get it. And it's hard to communicate like, oh, these are going to be cool designs. Because what does that even mean, you know? No My, one trusts you. It's it's hard. It's hard to trust me.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I'm not saying you, but the proverbial you. The proverbial you. No one trusts <laughs> you. You say something's going to be cool. That's such a big opinion thing. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's like, you, you know how like I'm, Unquantifiable, right? So Dean Lister, mm-hmm. our friend. Oh, Dean Lisch. Dean Lisch, yeah. He's like, hey, I have this funny video I'm going to show you. He's like, it's real funny. Trust me. Bro, I'm looking at him, bro. I don't trust you. I trust you on a lot of stuff, not this.
0: You know you're about to waste one minute and 38 seconds of your life watching the Dean List video of whatever. Yeah,
2: whatever. Some abstract thing. Odd thing thing in Russia. Whatever. And (laughs) and the video was like four and a half minutes long. I'm like, so right now I either suck it up and, Mm -hmm. and, and waste four and a half minutes or kind of offend Dean Lister, which, yeah. you know, depending on his mood, that might be a mistake in and of itself. Nonetheless, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, just because Dean says this video is going to be fun doesn't mean it's going to be funny. So it's hard. So it's hard to trust opinions. Yes. But when it goes down and you already missed it, it's like, man, you kind of should have trusted me a little mm. bit. You see what I'm saying? That's kind of how it's working. You sound
0: so, like a used car salesman. Trust me.
2: Uh, you know. How about this? Do your best to trust me. Okay. That they're good and it's going to be fun. You're going to be glad you subscribe for this thing. We could say that the
0: evidence of past performance of, what would you say, cool t-shirts?
2: Cool, fun, desirable.
0: Evidence of that is strong. Very strong. And predicts possibly high levels of coolness in the future.
2: There is a significant amount of regularity in the satisfaction of the current and past designs. Yes. Check. Here's the good news. Maybe I might bring one or two back later. I don't know when. I don't know which ones. I don't know if it's even going to happen, but I might. Hmm. I don't know. So anyway. I think that's illegal. Uh, it, it's possible, but I'm going to sidestep some of the red tape that I made, by the way. But <laughs> I'm going to sidestep some of it. and I'll, So this is what I'll do. So we have an email list on the store, jockstore.com the bo- uh, at the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you sign up for that email list, if we do bring back, pa- back past designs, I'll email you. Cool. Sign up for that.
0: Check. Um, speaking of subscriptions, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We got some other podcasts. We got Jocko Unraveling with Daryl Cooper. We're going deep. Mm-hmm. We're going dark too. It's get, It's been getting real ugly. Sorry, that's the way the world is. You have mm-hmm. to learn about history so that you don't repeat it. We have the Grounded Podcast. Dean List has been around. We need to get that one rolling. Mm-hmm. Warrior Kid Podcast as well. You can also join us on. In the underground, we have JockoUnderground.com where, look, we, we are doing a podcast once a week. We are doing this so that we have a contingency plan. We just did a podcast that when we posted on YouTube, we got, I won't say we, well, we'll, we'll get, we got the warning, right? Yeah. Controversial, whatever, fact-checking. It was about the Armenian genocide, and and look, it's just an indication it's an indication that we're not in control. So if that was to get really bad, we wanna have a contingency plan ready to execute. So JockoUnderground.com, if you wanna help us be ready for that happening, we hope it doesn't happen, but if we have to, you can help us out, that way we don't have to have sponsors, you only have to listen to Echo Talk for 98 minutes at the end of a podcast, but you know you, First of all, you're probably not even listening right now. Second of all,
2: first off, it's very valuable information. That's
0: first stuff. $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, we don't want you to not be a part of the underground. If you can't afford it, no problem. Email assistance at jockounderground.com and we'll take care of it. We just wanna have a place to go should things get crazy.
2: Also, YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel for the video version of this podcast. You know, you want to see what our guests look like. Or you just prefer the video version, which is a thing. i said this for a while. You play it on the TV, in the gym, in the house, wherever you play it on a screen. Boom. We do have an official YouTube channel. Also, there's excerpts on there. So you don't want to listen to the whole podcast necessarily like 20 minutes before work mm-hmm. or whatever. Or a meeting or some time-constrained Event you have just listen to some of the excerpts get the value. What do you know about work and meetings (laughs) Uh, and time constraints? (laughs) This is like I'm learning. I'm I'm learning fast. How about that? We're good. We're good
0: psychological warfare got an album with tracks if you need a little help overcoming some momentary weakness I'll be there for you press play psychological warfare We got flipside canvas which is Dakota Myers company where he's putting stuff for you to hang on your wall Things that say discipline equals freedom Go to flipsigncanvas.com if you want
2: to get some of that. i got a bunch of books. I just posted a little post from Final Spin. What'd yes, you think? I liked it. Yeah. What'd you think? It's, good. it's funny because I've kind of I've grown to know your kind of, I don't want to say signature, but some things that are pretty unique to you hmm. when, when it comes to writing. Like the how you'll start the margins like later and later yeah. for a certain like psychological the psychological effect. I noticed some of that, but what was it wasn't necessarily surprising as it was like oh I see what you're doing there is that you'll talk and it'll talk like that and then it'll start to kind of rhyme in a way mm. and I'll be like oh okay all right. It's going to be very
0: interesting. Yeah. The the reactions to that that look I posted one it's two hundred pages I posted yeah. one page and people were like what. I was gonna just, my, my original caption was, meet Jessica, right? Yeah, that was, I was yeah, gonna leave it at that, I really wanted to, but, <laughs> but then I was like, okay, that's, let's face it, we can be too vague in life, right? That was a little, yeah. that was a little too vague, but yeah, got a, a story, novel, poem, um, tr- transcript, that's the new thing I added to it, transcript. Yeah. because the dialogue in it is just like a transcript this is what someone said yeah. and there's no freaking you know playing around with it this yeah. is a transcript of what's been said
2: yeah.
0: transcript poem book <laughs> novel yeah
2: going
0: to it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting
2: yeah it's it's interesting how you physically write it adds to like what do you call like the experience you know where you know a normal book cool love it of course you know boom but it's pretty comparatively basic it's strange because everybody that
0: reads it gets that yeah it's like oh i know exactly what this does yeah. it reads the same in your head you're like yeah, oh yeah, yeah. boom 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 it's mm-hmm. yeah it. a yeah. new, ver- new form of literature
2: Boom, Jocko, my man. Yeah, That's gonna be a good one, it's gonna be a fun one for sure. <laughs> so check that
0: out, Final Spin. If you want that first a dish, you know the deal. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual, the Code, the Evaluation, the Protocols, Discipline with Freedom Field Manual, brand new version, Way the Warrior Kid 4 Field Manual, and then you've got one, two, and three as well, Mikey and the Dragons, Hackworth's About Face, and the OGs, Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy of Leadership, Echelon Front, Have a Leadership Consultancy, If you need help in your organization, that help will come in the form of leadership. Go to echelonfront.com if you want help with the leadership inside your organization. We also do online training, efonline.com. If you have a question for me, go to efonline.com, and I will be there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'll be there one, two, or three of those days. Most of the time, it's three of those days. Answering questions, talking about leadership, the rest of the Echelon Front team there as well. We have the Muster, which is a leadership event live. We didn't do any in 2020 because Miss Rona, but Miss Rona has been kind of handled at this point. People are vaccinated and whatnot. So, luckily, we made the decision to execute Orlando May 25th and 26th. There's still some seats left. So, if you want to come to the Muster, go to extremeownership.com. Get there quick. We don't have that many seats left, but we do have some seats. So if you want to come, that's May 25th and 26th. After that, it's going to be Phoenix, August 17th and 18th, Las Vegas, October 28th, 29th. Get registered. ExtremeOwnership.com. EF Battlefield. Pay attention. If you if you're interested in doing that, we'll keep you posted. It's an awesome event, but we don't have another one on the books right now. As soon as we figure out when we're going to do it will i'll let you know and also if you want to help service members active and retired their families gold star families check out mark lee's mom mama lee she's got a charity organization and if you want to donate or you want to get involved well go to americasmightywarriors.org and of course on top of that we also have and you heard me talk about it today the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. You can go to specialops.org. You can go to Instagram or Twitter at, at softwarriorfnd. And on Facebook, at Warrior Foundation. You can check that out. It's just, you heard me. It's a freaking awesome organization. And if you want more of my wearisome wither, or you need more of Echoes, Incongruous interpretations. You can find us on the interwebs Twitter, Instagram, otherwise known as The Graham, and Facebook. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to General Clay Huttmacher for joining us and for his incredible service and sacrifice to this great nation and thanks to everyone at the Special Operations Warrior Foundation for looking after our most precious legacy, the children of our fallen heroes. And thanks to all the warriors in the military that are out there right now standing watch and keeping us safe from tyranny and from evil. And the same goes to those in uniform here on the home front. Our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and all other first responders, thank you for standing watch here at home. And to everyone else out there, remember what my friend and my brother Steve Voigt said before his last training mission. Quote, there is nothing that any person cannot achieve if he or she has the heart, end quote. So you can do it. But do you have the heart? And if you do, well, then don't let the opportunities of this life go to waste. Instead, go out there And get after it. And until next
2: time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.